Greetings, Terces, Terrans, Earthers, and anyone else listening now or in a thousand years somewhere far, far away. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Richard C. Hoagland. Richard's indisposed tonight, so filling in tonight for him is um, Ron Gibran. It's referring to oneself in the third person is a little creepy. Let me give you the world's shortest bio. Uh, when I was about eight or nine years old, people started to call me a know-it-all, so I decided I'd better. Uh, it's an ongoing project. Okay, now on to more important things. Uh, tonight, the subject is insight, and our guest is Tim Ventura. I keep hey. expecting there to be more music. Oh, there you are. Hi, yeah, Tim. no, I'm here. I just unmuted myself. Yes, I am Tim Ventura, and I am here with you, Ron. We will get through this together. I think it's awesome that you're filling in for Richard. I hope that he is feeling better soon. And uh, yes, yeah, let me know how I can help you get started. Well, you could help us a little bit by telling us about yourself. Well, let me see my my long uh, origin story, as it were. I guess. Um, well, so let, I, I'll, let me give you your bio. Uh, and then we'll catch you in any mistakes that you make. Uh, Tim Ventura is the founder of American Anti-Gravity and has over 20 years of experience in emerging propulsion technology, along with career experience as a successful digital marketing executive, uh, startup advisor and strategy consultant. Sorry, I broke that sentence up. I've only read it 100 times. His work has been featured on many print, radio, and television venues such as Wired Magazine. I read that one myself. Jane's Defense Weekly, the Discovery Channel, Nippon TV, and many more. Tim joins us tonight to discuss the APEC conference, which he will explain, which has been called the Woodstock of Anti-Gravity, along with his research into the mystery of Navy UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, sightings. Okay, Tim, what did we get wrong? Oh, no, you know what? That sounds pretty good, uh, and I'm happy to elaborate, you know. Um, so, yeah, Coast guests uh, from way back when, many of whom followed Richard to the other side of midnight over the years, um, will probably be familiar with me. I'm the founder of American Into Gravity. I was on Coast a few times, um, and, you know, I, I've spoken on various issues relating to breakthrough propulsion. And so I'm very happy to be here tonight and be able to continue the legacy, I guess, um, on, on Richard's own show now. That's very exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm glad that things are going well. I'm glad he's building an audience. It's, it, I'm pleased as punch to see that everything is kind of moving forward there. So, uh, again, 2002, American Anti-Gravity. Uh, back then, we were playing with something called Lifters. Uh, again, folks may remember those. They were like made out of tinfoil. We put a high voltage on them. They would lift off and fly around. Um, so at the time, that did pretty well with the media. And, uh, you know, after two or three years of radio, TV around the world, I realized my 15 minutes and fame were just about up. So I started doing interviews with other innovators in the field. And I literally just started stacking interviews online, uh, you know, 80 or 90 something interviews that I did there. And we ended up wrapping up the, the American Anti-Gravity Project probably in around 2007, mid-2007. So it was just a little over five-year run with it. Okay, um, I, that's a good starting point. Yeah. I like to do that, jump right in and shut people down. Uh, that sounds good. Uh, let's try Richard's... Um promo he had something laid out there and but i found one paragraph in your 
uh, write-up of the conference that uh, I want to talk to you about. Hmm. Ah, okay. And by the, oh, and by the way, uh, for everyone out there, his websites, you want to, I'll let you give out the website address in a second, although it's on the Other Side of Midnight website. If folks just go to the other side of midnight.com, uh, everything in the world that matters about anything we're going to talk about tonight is there. It is the sacred archives, at least at the moment, even on a rough day. So um, anyway, it says anti-gravity, the siren song of space propulsion engineers for decades. And I like that. The... Um, I'm having to do this on my phone, folks. That's the only time I'm going to apologize for something, but it does make it a little clunkier than having it laid out on big screens in front of you. Uh, Tim Ventura, founder and current president of American Aid Gravity and possessed of endless energy himself, as far as I can tell, a nonprofit research group experimenting with a variety of engineering techniques to achieve this holy grail of modern science is the guest tonight. And as he just said, he's in touch with most of the major players and we've probably heard of most of them as well. Well, but we'll get into that. I'm more interested in the um, things behind the curtain, what it says, the um, above top secret, the real military anti-gravity technologies. And in other words, uh, back engineering and getting stuff into the public sector, because I think that's going on right now. And there's one paragraph here that I just love. Will it be built around the continued use our new pro propulsion systems, that is, uh, continued use of a demonstrably 3,000-year-old obsolete technology. He's talking about the Chinese. They made um, rockets at least that long ago. If anybody else came up with gunpowder first, uh, we don't really know yet, but they didn't use it for war. They just were shooting up uh, skyrockets. It was like fireworks. They invented fireworks first and then weapons which I think is kind of interesting. But was it rockets like that? The same old stuff, paper wrapped around some dynamite or something? Or is it the newly created Space Force? Is that just the cover for the coming unveiling of the reality of a current real secret space program based on real anti-gravity spaceships? Just from a common sense, you kind of have to say, well, probably yes, because why are you going to keep sticking people on top of rockets and shooting them into the air the, um, when you need something that can lift as much weight as you like and take it wherever you like and go as fast as you like? And that's the very technologies that Tim's group has been studying and working on for some time. And the now if I can find the commerce or the... Hmm, Click. This is what happens. At least it's not noisy. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, this has to be it. Yeah, here they are. This is the APEC one I was looking for. This is something that was released as a sort of a press thing, I guess. It says APEC conference. And, uh, well, I'll tell you, it's the Alternative Propulsion Engineering Conference. <laughs> I love acronyms. That's a good one. Uh, down in here, we have here it is. What are some of the key technologies? Tim, this is for you. It says we've discussed. Speaking of the um, 
press release. We've discussed nearly every approach to emerging propulsion imaginable. Common themes include ideas like the Alcubierre warp drive, Jack Sarfati's metamaterials, Godkutnov's superconductor experiments, Alzafon's atomic resonance NMR propulsion, gyroscopic and inertialist propulsion, like the Dean drive, I suppose, and of course, Woodward's mock effect thruster. Now, I've heard of maybe one of those, and I'm a self-professed know-it-all, so I, I mean, I've certainly heard of Jack Safardi, familiar with his work, but uh, the Alcubierre warp drive happens to coincide with the very first question that I decided this afternoon before I saw any of this that I was going to ask Tim. Tim, explain to us what a warp drive is. Um, well, uh, sorry, you, you've kind of gotten mixed up and turned around. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of warp drive, basically you're, you're basically just moving space along with you. You're creating a warp between two places in space, right? And so it's, you're talking about creating a manifold through space time, but that's not. No, I'm talking about the technology. I mean, I know about the wrinkled sheet, the Einstein stuff. That's everybody's been exposed to that, whether that meant anything or not, folding the, folding the piece of paper so you can cross from one spot to another. Yeah, no, no, no. Physically, as a technology, what constitutes a warp drive? What do you have to What do you have to do to make space do that? Well, there are a lot of different approaches that you can take to it, but that really, again wasn't really what I was going to present on tonight. I mean, if, if it's okay, you know, if it's okay, I'd love to kind of tell you what we've been up to and we can kind of go from there. Does that work? Oh, we can do, oh, we can do all okay. of that. I just wanted to spread, just wanted to sprinkle in a question. Everybody, you know, it's not, I mean, it's not like the riddle of the Sphinx. I just want, I just want a simple explanation of that because when I see term terminology thrown around, uh, sometimes it's used incorrectly. Sometimes it's used inaccurately. It's, I just wonder. Since there's always a Star Trek element to things, like the Star Trek element to the Space Force, you know, the um, their version of a chevron indisput indisputably is almost identical to the uh, shape of the Starfleet emblem. And uh, the uh, when President Trump announced that they were really going to push the efforts to get a vaccine for the virus, um, he said, we're going at warp speed another star trek reference i don't find any of these surprisingly surprising since nasa uh decided to label their first space shuttle which never actually got to go much of anywhere uh enterprise <laughs> you know the link is solid it's been there a long time but so then there's warp drive which they made famous nobody else calls it that what is a warp drive A warp drive is basically modifying time space that you can exceed so you can exceed the speed of light. So you're creating a bubble of time space around yourself. There are a couple different ways to do it. Uh, you know, in the case of Albuquerque, he was stretching time space. And that's something that you can use gravity for. You might be able to use higher dimensional forces as well through string and brain theory. So there are a few different ways to do it. You know, again, it kind of gets into details that are difficult to explain, I guess. But uh, I guess the way to look at it would, no. would be warping time and space. No, that's a good, that's a good answer. 
I mean, that's that's what I that's what I was after. I just want to make sure that people don't think this is all hypothetical fantasy. You know, plus that's an awful that was an awful lot of tasty jargon in that one paragraph. I just wanted to go through there. So, well, all right, all right. I'll if you don't want if you have somewhere else you wanted to go, uh, I can ask you who um, Alzafon and Alcubierre specifically were later. Hello, yep. hello, hello. This Hi is there. Cynthia. I couldn't resist jumping in. <laughs> okay, go this, on. This conversation is fascinating to me, and I have to confess that I am, you know, not up to speed on all this, and many of our audience may not be. So I'd like to ask you, Tim, where do you think we should start? What is the best starting point? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are probably worth talking about tonight. The first one that I'm most excited about is the APEC conference. And I would love to, you know, kind of walk you through how that came about and what that means and hopefully what that means to the future of things. Then I also have three big maybes for 2021. And I think that these are going to be pretty profound paradigm shifts if they come to pass. And so, you know, I'd love to kind of walk you through those as well. Then I'd like to talk a little bit about UAPs, and I'm not an expert in this area, right? UAPs, UFOs, same same thing, different jargon. Um, but this is an area that I've kind of I've started to explore again. I actually wrote this off about ten years ago, and I've kind of come back to it with fresh eyes, I guess. And I'm so I'm looking at that, saying, well, where could this go, and what does this potentially mean? So those are some of them, you know, in in terms of the space force. Uh, I'm not really a believer in secret space forces, and I can talk about why I don't believe in the secret space force. There's a lot of stuff that I can tell you about the space force. I've interviewed uh, and I've talked with uh, the founders of it. And, uh, you know, again, I can kind of go into that in more detail as well. But, you know, if you're looking at the space force thinking, okay, this is going to be Star Trek warp drive type stuff. No, that's that's not what it's about. It's pretty surface level. It's more of a political motivation behind it, ah. I guess. And that, that's kind of what uh, makes it really interesting. So, uh, Tim, yeah, yeah. This, this is Ron again. No, that's yeah, that's exactly uh, what I wanted you to do was. Uh, and it does say on the banner that we're going to talk about the uh, Space Force and all its permutations. So uh, I just wondered where you wanted to go first. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think probably the best place to start is with the APEC conference. For me, that is the most exciting and I would say really the most unexpected. So let's do it. How many have there been? Or is this a new or is this a new thing? It's you know, it's kind of an ongoing conference. We've had six sessions so far. We have session number seven coming up. Um so this is it, it basically it's an entirely online Zoom-based conference. Each one of these bad boys lasts about six to six and a half hours, not by choice. It just ends up kind of dragging out that far, and that seems to be where it, where it wants to be in terms of time. And so we're doing these typically on like a Saturday afternoon. We start around noon Pacific time. And basically, this started out with a bunch of folks who were interested in gravity modification 
warp drives, Alcubierre, all of those kind of things that you've mentioned before. They, they were interested in those and they just wanted to chat. They were bored, right? We've all been trapped inside because of COVID, because of the pandemic. And, and so folks can't go to regular conferences, you know? So they, they, uh, they realized, hey, we can use Zoom for this, right? That's everyone's new skill for this year is being able to use Zoom. So we did the first one in early November, and it was a bunch of guys working in their garages. They're building stuff in their garage, which for me was really exciting because back when I was doing American Anti-Gravity, that's what I was doing. I was building stuff in my garage. And so I said, well, this is awesome. But, you know, over the last couple of decades, we also have a collection of PhD physicists and real engineers and people who are doing real work in this area in terms of physics and design and things like that. So let's get some of these guys involved. So we did. So conference number one, again, was just garage engineering, right? These are the, these are the, the anti-gravity hackers. These are garage cowboys putting stuff How together. Fun. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was tons of fun. And you know, they didn't have any demonstrations that worked, but that's okay. That part of the thrill of it is, you know, is trying to figure out how we can recreate some of these experiments that we've read about online right now. One of those, uh, for instance, is uh, Eugene Pogklinoff's rotating superconductor. And then he had what's called the force beam experiment, where he took a superconductor and shocked it with a very high voltage, high amperage charge. So these fellows in their garage, they bought the superconductor, they set it up, they did a test. And instead of generating a gravity discharge, it actually just exploded. You know, but that's okay. That's okay. It's one of those things where you you fail fast and move forward and learn how to do the experiment better next time. So that's kind of where it started six sessions ago. And then we got fellows like, uh, well, we got Paul Murad, who's an aerospace engineer. He used to he used to be the section head of the STAFE conference, which was a University of uh, uh, Albuquerque, University of New Mexico Albuquerque nuclear science conference. And they had an emerging propulsion section. So we got him involved. We got John Brandenburg involved. And I know that he and Richard Hoagland go way back. He's done some work in this area as well. And we we just literally started getting more and more folks on board. Um, we've had presentations by David Alzafon, who has kind of a do-it-yourself flying saucer reverse engineering system. Mark McCandlish talked about the ARV, the Alien Reproduction Vehicle. So as you can see, it's not just pure science. We've also mixed in a fair amount of ufology. And that, that wasn't really intentional. It just seems to be an interest area. And right now, it seems like UFOs and UAPs are kind of on everybody's mind. So, so that's... The, that's that's Can kind I of ask where you we're about at. one of them. Okay. Oh, sure, sure. Sorry, sorry. I just uh, you mentioned Mark McCandless, and he's the uh, illustrator that um, he sort of invented the idea of the exploded diagram. You know, like you, they they became famous in popular science, and then Scientific America starts Americans started to use them, and where you see something as if it's transparent because it's like nested line drawings. It's a really fascinating three-dimensional um, uh, nesting doll sort of sort of thing that he does amazingly well and nobody else does. But what did he talk about? 
Well, so again, he talked about the alien reproduction vehicle. So this was something that his source, Brad, and uh, I forgot Brad's last name, but it's it's well known if you want to look it up. His source, Brad, saw at an air show. Supposedly, he went to a hangar. I think it was at Wright Pat. Might be mistaken. Pitt. I think I think his last name is Pitt. <laughs> the one, yeah. Um, it, it, Not that I, one. No, different one. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, so anyhow, they came, they, he saw this thing at an air show. It was a classified air show. Uh, and uh, the, the, the long and the short of it is he came back and they tried to reverse engineer this thing. So they came up with the exploded schematics and they've tried to apply various ideas to explaining how it would work. So we had him at the conference and he ran through everything. And again, for, for him, this is close to 20 years worth of, design and engineering and stuff like that. What makes these conferences interesting is that there, there are two things. It's been called the Woodstock of anti-gravity, and I, I firmly support that description. We have the greatest living innovators in this field together online discussing things for the first time ever, right? Um, we're not able to get them all at once, but we've got a pretty good collection of them. And they're working together and they're talking. So not only can you hear about these ideas, you can hear the discussion and the dialogue and you can hear people brainstorming in real time. So for me, that's really exciting. It's 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 literally kind of a best of breed. You know, this is the kind of stuff that you go to conferences for. It's it's not just what you hear during the conference. It's not just the presentation. It's also the discussion, right, where the experts in the field are talking about how to build things, how to make things better, what the scientific theories mean behind them. So, so you know, that's that's a big part of it. The other part, and I think that the audience would be really excited about this, is all of this material is online. We're Because it's in Zoom, we're going straight to YouTube. In fact, we're live streaming this. A fellow named Jeremy Reese, uh, he goes by the handle Alien Scientist on YouTube. He is live streaming to he has an audience of 110,000 subscribers. My audience in American Anti-Gravity is, is substantially smaller. It's only about 10,000 subscribers, but we are broadcasting to both of those. And this stuff is up there for posterity. And that's, that's really our goal because one of the challenges that we faced is in this community, much like nuclear physicists and a lot of other kind of Cold War uh, professions, expert, you know, areas of expertise, I guess, um, we have a lot of older fellows in our group. We have a lot of older people. And, you know, unfortunately, a, a lot of the older folks won't necessarily be with us that much longer. So one of the things that we wanted to do was start to try and capture their ideas and their thoughts and their personality and their brilliance, right, for posterity, you know. Um, so that's that's kind of another part of it is we're getting the greatest minds together and we are trying to capture as much as we can of of their brilliance, I guess. Uh, and, and so that that's what makes me excited. Now, if your audience wants to learn about this, they can learn more at AmericanAntiGravity.com. Again, that's just www.AmericanAntiGravity.com. We are also working on a new website just for the conference. It's AltPropulsion.com. A-L-T-P-R-O-P, you know, U-L-S-I-O-N.com. So altpropulsion.com or americanantigravity.com. So I hope that I hope that is kind of a, a good overview of the conference to kind of get you started. Oh, cool. When is it exactly? 
Well, so what we're doing right now is about twice a month. Um, for for a while, we were doing them every week, and it just kind of knocked everybody out. As you might imagine, six hours at a stretch every Saturday, you know, we, we realized we can't keep this up. So right now, we're doing every two weeks. Okay. Our next one is February 13th, so it's coming up next Saturday. I love oh, okay. the citizen science that's happening here and the collaboration between the generations. It's exciting and that it's on, you know, Zoom and YouTube so that I, in my little room here, can attend. <laughs> I well, think that's know, fabulous. Kinthia, the, the thing that intrigues me is this. I, I'm 44 years old right now. And what I found was when I started American Anti-Gravity, I was in my, you know, mid-20s. And I, I got out of this. I went into corporate America. I did marketing, did executive management, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, you know, I have, I have a family to support bills to pay just like everybody else. And I, I just wasn't able to maintain both. So what interested me was the fellows that were doing this garage tinkering, the way that they got me into this, the way that they, they kidnapped me, so to speak, was, was by telling me how much the material I'd done, the interviews and things like that had helped inspire them. And I was oh. like, well, wait a minute. That is that is interesting. Okay, so I guess I have a responsibility here, right? Now, I'm not sure how much I can follow through with that, but but it, it was it was interesting to have my work influence others who are younger than me, and then in turn that got me to thinking about the people who influenced my work, you know, because mm -hmm. with a lot of this material, and I think this goes for any kind of esoteric area, I think all of us have spent more than our share of time digging through the internet, digging through libraries, you know, mail order catalogs, trying to piece together information, you know. And when you get into stuff like anti-gravity or warp drives or any kind of emerging technology like that, if we're able to provide all of that or or even just more of that than they would be able to get on their own, we can bootstrap them, right? So you take people who are building things, they don't have to start at square one, we can start them at square three. And hopefully they'll achieve those breakthroughs. So that's that's kind of another goal, I guess. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, oops. I've got a car. I've got a compliment for the website. I was going to tell you that Tim, you're um, all three of them that I looked at. Something makes me think of Walter Winchell. I mean, I know Drudge thinks he was the new Walter Winchell because with the uh, typeface and everything else he used for the Drudge Report, which nobody looks at anymore. But the um, yours, the way it's set up, the way the articles run, and that picture of you, uh, you're the new Walter Winchell of the um, unusual. Well, Walter Winchell, hmm. I, you know, I, it's, it's been a long time. I have to go back and look. He's old school. That's the, uh, very old. old. He, he's even too old for me. He's just the icon, you know. But, Hello, America and all the ships at sea. You know, he had this whole pitch, <laughs> whole pitch that he did. I can't remember it, but it was uh, like I said, it was. I've only seen clips myself. But yes, you come across with that kind of polish, and a lot of those things are a little bit slip. A lot of presentations like that are a little slipshod, you know. And yours is yours is very tight. Well, well I, I appreciate I, you saying that. Uh, you know, I, I've. One of the things when I got back into this this year, I, I went through a lot of the old material and I, I tried to, like you say, I tried to polish it, tried to clean it up, tried to resurrect it. 
Um, some of the old stuff, you know, had to kind of throw away and start from scratch. So, you know, there, there was a lot of just kind of cleanup, I guess. <clears throat> um, and especially with American anti-gravity, because that's the one with like a 20 year, you know, history behind it. The, the APEC conference is newer. Um, again, we just started doing that in November. And so our challenge there is basically just kind of keeping up with what we have now. Um, you know, again, we're trying to do two guests and then basically a garage lab session for every two weeks. And so a, a big part of that is just keeping up with presentations and making sure everybody's organized and, you know, all that kind I of like fun the, stuff. I like the garage lab part. That's a, that's a nice touch. It makes, you're taking so, the same starting path as, um, Comic-Con. That's how Comic-Con Dear ones, we are at break. So you're listening to the other side of midnight. Our show tonight is called Inside, and our honored guest is Tim Ventura, and we will return. objective from the beginning, um, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict. Very, yes. very harsh. <laughs> and most people fail to, to realize the, uh, the strictness for, and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes could take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone. And if you missed a, a, a dotting an I, you, the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress. And then the queen, king I should say, or queen, would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. Mm -hmm. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity, I think there's 12 or 13 of them now, um, that developed over the years where it basically was a, uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada. 
Canada, and I would urge everybody to be able to support the other side of the news. With the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there, everybody needs an alternative source of accurate, truthful information. And the other side of the news provides that information, that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight is Tim Ventura and our co-host is Ron Gibran. And I want to let you all know that this all was dumped into Ron's lap like half an hour before the show. So, you know, <laughs> I really appreciate him stepping in and I'm going to handle the breaks. I know Ron will do a great job and it was, it's not easy to step into Richard's shoes. Um, Actually, thank you, some, Cynthia. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not easy. And, uh, you know, he's only no, going the from the phone, so I should have helped out at the very beginning. So, dear Ron and Tim, yeah. let's take it away. <laughs> yeah. No, I like I said, I wasn't going to do any apologies, but I didn't have time to do some things that you think you know already, but you don't. You know out there exactly how long a break is. Do you know what the up and down sound of the music is like? No, because you're not paying any attention to it unless it affects you directly. And I would normally run through that stuff just like I would find out how to pronounce everybody's name. But uh, that's the part I didn't get. So, yes, it does make it a little clunky. And thank you, Kinthia. Uh, I know you have other you always have other stuff to do. But, um, yeah, the, the <laughs> breaks the breaks are a small good. problem. And yeah, you Tim I broke is such out early. a gracious guest. You are such a gracious guest, Tim. And I'm oh, so excited yes. Thank you. hearing about this grassroots, you know, sharing of technology. It really makes me feel um, like humanity is on the edge of something new, like we're participating and co-creating in ways that we never have before. We all feel that way. Well, you know, and if I could jump in, I think one of the things that's that's important, and and one of the one of the friction points, right? I guess we could call it that. Is um, you know, when you look at science, mainstream science, you've got you know universities and the whole system in place, right, to educate and indoctrinate and kind of beat people into line, so to speak. And when you look at emerging science, you've always got this frontier, right? So it's frontier science. I think that's a common word for folks in this audience. And you need grassroots. You need cowboys. You need people who are going to break the rules and do things their own way. And you know what? They are going to fail. They're going to fail fast. That's that's kind of what the, the mantra is. And they'll try it. It won't work. They'll get out of the way and they'll try something else. Now, an example of that in the traditional space industry is Elon Musk, right? They just blew up their, was it eighth or ninth starship prototype? 
you know, it doesn't even make it back down to the pad. It, it just crashes. And they say, that's fine. They scrap it and they build another one. So they do fail. They fail repeatedly, but they fail fast and then they move on to the next thing. So that's, you know, I, I think that's an approach. It's not the only approach, but when you're working in territory where you don't necessarily know what will happen, you don't necessarily know if your parameters are all right, then you need to be able to adjust things quickly and move forward, you know? And so this grassroots approach does help. Uh, it, it, it helps cross pollinate in some ways. It brings in new ideas and insights. And again, it breaks the status quo and that can be very useful for some types of development, you know? Ah, didn't expect you to stop. Oh, uh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, that's sorry okay. That. That's okay. Well, I haven't, yeah, I haven't talked with you, talked with you before. But uh, I would like to talk some more about the terminology or the um, technology itself. And I know that um, there are others out there, including our own Keith, that would like to um, have a piece of that, too. Uh, that's why I started off with a warp drive question. It wasn't to try and derail your train. I just wanted to um, verify to everybody that you could explain this stuff to to us if necessary, because uh, not everybody, as Kentia said, understands all of this stuff and we don't want to get them lost in the weeds but you did just have a conference about quantum gravity zero point energy and uaps and you said you wanted to talk about the uaps yeah this 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 is an interesting year i i mean i don't think anyone could deny that right and um you know i remember at the end of 2020 just just last month people were saying well you know maybe we'll get back to normal maybe things will be a little bit more relaxed in 2021 but you know i in a weird way i think that it's going to get even stranger and uh, i think we're all seeing some of the the hallmarks of that approaching you know and so one of the again one of the things that i want to talk about was the three big maybes for 2021 these for me these are the ones that are really kind of just you know those things that kind of scratch at your brain where you're just like okay I, it's it's there i'm 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 wondering about it i'm not sure what to think so one of those is Mars Perseverance, right? The, the Mars Perseverance probe. Um, that's probably something that, that Richard has talked about a fair amount. Th that has a sensor package on it called Sherlock. So that lands, starts its mission on Mars this February. And what's interesting about Mars Perseverance is it is outfitted with a package to be able to look for life. Basically, it can detect chemical signatures remotely with this camera system, and then it can go in for a closer look and do and do tests. So NASA, you know, NASA likes to, they try and like to publicize things as much as they can. They've been trying to build up this little helicopter that's attached to it, right? That, that hopefully can take off and fly remotely in Mars the atmosphere. And I guess if they can make that work, it's an achievement of some kind, but it's really a toy. The interesting thing for me is there is a very real possibility that in the next couple of months, once Perseverance starts being able to do its tests, they'll have an announcement of life on Mars, past or present, right? Maybe oh, say I think they've been waiting for a chance to say that. That's yeah. the whole point of this. It's, see, this is, this is why I wondered why you said you didn't believe in a secret space program, and that's what I was going to jump, jump on you next about, because why don't you? It's pretty obvious that they know more than, uh, and by they, 
insert your favorite. I don't care if you say the the men in black, the Illuminati, the secret people that run the world from behind the curtains. It doesn't matter. You know, dark NASA, whatever you want to call, whoever you want to identify, they know already. And everybody knows that they know already. I mean, how many people do you know that don't think that there's stuff going on in secret? So why wouldn't there be a secret space program? There's evidence that goes back to the 50s of the military actually putting people in rockets and shooting them at things. You know, the the trouble that I have with the secret space program is the infrastructure required to build and maintain it, right? And, you know, I, I've, I've heard this quote. I can't remember who said it offhand, but they said uh, – actually, it was Ben Franklin – could said three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. And what he meant by that is, it, it, you know, the more people who are involved in something that's secret, the better the chance that it will leak, right? But you so, don't have to keep it a secret. All you have to do is make it invisible. You do that by burying it in the noise. That's what they finally realized, that stuff is going to leak out. And if you do need more than three people, and this needs several mag magnitudes uh, more than that, then uh, it's fine because uh, there was an old CIA saying that uh, it's great working for the company because uh, if, if I want to tell somebody something over a couple beers, I can say anything I want. If it's classified, nobody will believe it. If it's not classified, no harm done. Well, I so, guess the but, question would be how you define secret space program. What I mean, how how would you envision an, that? I guess an ongoing space program involving even live astronauts that goes back to the dawn uh, the dawn of the idea, right at the end of World War II. The Nazis had a space program. I'm not saying they populated the solar system uh, just from out under my hat. Uh, they were building something called the A2 or the A9-10 which was a rocket that the ultimately uh, was the ancestor of the Saturn V at Pinamunda. And uh, it was solely for that. It was solely for use as a space program. And apparently uh, people like uh, Hitler wouldn't sign off on it because he didn't see a military purpose. He was getting pretty crazy toward the end of the world war with all that all that methadrine coursing through his system and all the um, soldiers marching towards him with other people's flags. Uh, and uh, but they, he wouldn't sign off on spending any money on it. Well, it speaking pointless. of money, I want to jump in here because yeah. our sound engineer, Keith Morgan, who I'm sure will jump in on the show later on, uh, put in the chat box, Rumsfeld said that there were trillions of dollars missing from the military just before 911 took place. Where did the money go? Hmm. So that's a question there. And by the way, I have uploaded some images, some YouTubes from Keith. So at some convenient time, you can reload the page and you'll see new items there in Keith's section. Yeah. So back to you guys. Well, okay. Jeff, oh, Tim, go ahead. Tim, just... go ahead. Let Tim. Well, you know, yeah. I, I, actually, I wanted to, I wanted to jump in. There were a couple. There were a couple other things that I think are interesting. I think these are are big maybes, right? So, so again, Mars Perseverance and and some kind of a maybe announcement that might happen. But you know, it, the the other one, which is more recent, is the Proxima Centauri candidate signal at Breakthrough Listen, and that intrigues me just because. 
uh, they haven't been able to rule it out yet, right? And that whole thing, to me, is a little questionable because it seems like they spend a lot of time looking for signals and then find creative ways to say that they're not real, right? So who's to say? But um, but it is interesting that they have a new candidate signal, and I think it was 982 megahertz, and they haven't been able to rule it out. And Lord only knows, give them enough time to process it, and maybe it will turn out to be some kind of alien communications. If that's the case, this comes from a star that's literally like, was it Proxima Centauri? It's like 40 light years away. This is, I believe they said it was 4.7, I think. Yeah. So it's on our doorstep, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so that's another interesting thing because then you get into issues like, okay, so we have a signal and it's close. Well, does that mean that the universe is populated with aliens? I mean, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, so the Proxima Centauri signal is number two. And then number three is this Director of National Intelligence Report. And you've probably heard about that, right? That's the one that they had the 180-day deadline on. And I think that we're right. already 20-something days into that. Right. So, Those never seem to pay off. You know, it, I I would like to disagree with you. I'm not sure if I can. I, the, the the military is very good at finding creative ways to get out of stuff like this. So, um, sure. So name one that had you know name one that has come to pass the way it was supposed to. If it was anything the least bit interesting, look at yeah. the Ken look at the stuff about the Kennedy assassination, which I'm personally not terribly interested in that's not one of my uh favorite searches but uh every time it's almost released and this is apparently innocuous personnel stuff uh it gets reclassified or moved or something and well and that's with, that's a good point uh, although the the in this case the thing that is working in its favor is the navy ua sighting uap sightings are very public and and they're you know everyone is asking a lot of questions and for, from what I've seen, there is no way that they can just dismiss that, right? In the past, it was swamp gas or hallucinogens or whatever. But like, for instance, in the case of the 2004 sighting, you had Fravor go up. He visually sighted this UAP. Uh, he knew something was going on. He was running low on fuel. So he came back in. So they retasked another vehicle that had a, a FLIR system, right? The forward looking for red, yes. it went up and then it got video. So you have, you have two different aircraft plus radar on the ships that are all picking this thing up. And now the video has been released. It was released by the Navy. So it seems like it's pretty damning evidence that they have something that they at least can't explain. And they have a lot of questions to answer now. So they, they well, might Well, here's my theory. Yeah. Oh, ah. That's almost a, that's almost one where you bump fists. You were about to say the same thing, except probably something different. Yeah, there, my theory about that is that there's no question in my mind that those things that were buzzing the planes are domestic. They're not from somewhere else. They're back engineered. I mean, they could be from something like the uh, like what Richard calls the breakaways, but they knew about them. They know about them, and in fact, those were released, as I remember, uh, illicitly earlier these are the same one these are the same clips and shots that we saw from was it the black vault that put them up and there was zero and, and the navy said nothing and then all of a sudden more recently they make a formal declaration that oh look at this stuff and we don't know what they are 
Well, I, if that sounds like a disclosure process to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. Now, see, in in my case, I, I, I'm not particularly inclined to believe there are, but um, but I do believe it's something. Oh. And, and so if they come forward, my, my my thought is all they really need to say is it's it's intelligence, right? It's it's intelligently controlled. And I think everything else kind of falls into place behind that. So for for me again these these for me are the three big ones this year that I'm looking at saying if any one of these pans out right if we we could have a global paradigm shift and and I think that's really the big story you know is um people have been talking about UFOs they've been talking about secrecy and all of those kind of things for years right but but I, I think that we always kind of have this suspension of disbelief involved with it and so what happens if mainstream average guy on the street has to look at this and say we're not alone you know now maybe it's just some kind of exotic fungus on Mars that they took a photo of but that's I don't still... think funguses have saucers well, I, you know, I'm just using the least case example, right? If, you know, if Mars Perseverance comes back and says, we found some kind of a, you know, we found some kind of a mold on Mars, you know, that's still life. It's still life on another planet. And I think that there's still a paradigm shift. Um, it could go the other way. It could be that, you know, the maybe the director of national intelligence comes back and says, yes, we have something. We don't know what it is and we don't know how to stop it. Um, and you know, See, my problem is that that moss or um, lichen or mold is growing on buildings. There are ruins all over the place at, up there. And it's like, oh, look at this. There's a stain here. But the here that there's a stain on is a well-cut step, part of a flight of stairs. I mean, it's that ridiculous, you know, the way that some of it is as misdirection. And I would love to see some good fossils, and that's supposedly one of the things Perseverance is looking for. But, I mean, if you, you can look at the same picture. Two people can look at the same picture and see different things. If they condition you to think that it can only be microbial life or something like that, then a lot of minds will click into that. You're trying to help. You've been told there's mold there, so you're looking for mold. If you're, if you're not told there's buildings there, you won't look for buildings. I mean, some people will. I would. Maybe you would. Uh, but not everybody will. And so they won't see them. And they'll assume that anything that is, in fact, manufactured is just some uh, clever geological anomaly. And, well, you know, I don't know enough about geology and minerals to know why it looks like that. But it, it can't be artificial, so I just won't think about it. You know, that's all the paradigm shift takes is shifting that a little. Now, these things that buzz the planes, they can't be artificial drones like in the sense of like berserkers, you know, mindless well, AI driven things because they're playing games. The the AIs don't play games. The, 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 prob the, problem with, the problem with the UAPs, though, is based on the speed and the performance and stuff like that, there's, there's nothing on Earth that could match that, right? So that's... That's kind of the issue. And so that's why I lean towards some kind of an alien intelligence, I guess. Um, now, uh, you could always make the case that maybe they reversed engineered something in a lab somewhere. But, you know, but but the, the problem is then it becomes just kind of rampant speculation. And it's like, OK, well, where's the evidence? Right. Where are the stories from people who built it and all that kind of stuff? So 
I, I don't know. I, I tend to lean more towards the ET hypothesis on that. Um, I, well, then I, why are they here? You know, I've given this a lot of thought. There are a lot of theories. Uh, there are a lot of theories. Michael what do Masters. You think? Well, I, so I, I believe that they're you probably. You mean Marshall Masters. Marshall Masters, I believe. Yeah. And I think he talked about time travel. That's his hypothesis, right? I had, I think so. Yeah. Um, I burned out on Marshall, uh, I'm sorry to say, a while ago because he posts so many things. I can't handle people that post that much. But um, no, he's, yeah, I've heard him talk. I've heard him talk before. And I, I think you're right. I think it's mostly time travel. But I remember him about the ninth planet arguments about Nibiru and um, what what's the other name for it. And so I don't know, but people do. Continue. Why do you, uh, you know, why do you like, why do you believe that? Well, so in fact, I'm here, I'm just pasting is that's the, that's the book. I'll just paste that into the chat right there. Um, so I, I think in, in terms of, in terms of UAPs, the performance characteristics are far beyond any kind of an experimental aircraft, right? I mean, you've got hypersonic stuff that everybody's military is playing with. Um, there, there, there are all sorts of rocket technologies out there, but you know, nothing can pull those kind of G's in a turn. Nothing can accelerate that fast. You would have to have some kind of inertial dampening on the inside of it or else you squish your pilots. So it's, it's not conventional Earth-based technology, and there are no indications that it's been developed on Earth. You know? Well, now, Again, wait a minute. Even when people asked Einstein about stuff like that, uh, speaking of warped fields and so forth, uh, I mean, he was a proponent of the uh, – you, you, you've seen the analogy with the falling elevator, you know, and that applies. If you're inside a falling elevator, you know, the gravity is still the same. If you're in a ship going three quarters of the speed of light and you're throwing a, throwing a football back and forth in the cargo hold – uh, it's still going to be appropriate to whatever gravity you have set for the ship. I mean, these are, it's a bubble. It's a bubble. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. But if you uh, do a lot, excuse me, Tim. Sure. Uh, are you familiar with that, uh, a guy named, uh, Salvador Harris or Paris? Hayes. Yeah. Hayes. Hayes. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Navy Patton. And his electromagnetic propulsion system allows you to fly at thousands of miles an hour, not only through the air, but under the water. And make ninety degree right angle turns because it negates inertia. Have you seen those patents? It says I, it uses microwave energy to actually pull this off. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm familiar with the pace patents. The, the question is whether they work. That's and, and to my knowledge, they haven't built and tested them to the point of demonstrating that they work yet. So, well, from what I understand, the patent office was going to reject it until one of the naval superiors that he works for went in and said, grant the patent, we have a working prototype. You didn't hear about that? You know, I have heard that they've been building prototypes. I've even seen some photos of their prototypes, but it didn't. What Keith just uh, mentioned was it's a, it's a memo, and it's attached to the files. I mean, it's a formal memo, and it's attached to the files of the, that they published about that on, again, I think the Black Vault. Sorry, not trying to give them all the plugs, but that's where the stuff sits. Yes, he's right. Keith's right. They already yeah, talked about yeah. it. Yeah, and, and so the with the photos that I'd seen the, of the demos and stuff, it looked very rudimentary, probably enough to demonstrate the effect, but not necessarily enough to, you know, prove that they can actually build a craft out of it. That, that was 
you know, I, I think it's a good first step, right? I, I'm not knocking it at all. So the history that uh, has come out about people seeing in the 1950s what looked like a fuselage of a plane with no wings and hovering above a, uh, a highway to stop the traffic and a guy in a military uniform was looking for something and then he realized that these people were watching him and he got back in it and it took off at a tremendous rate. It's totally silent. Uh, none of that is stuff you've come across before? Well, I, it's not that I haven't come across it. It's the, the problem is um, it's impossible to know what the credibility factor is with that, right? With UFOs. That's, that's the problem. UFOs have gone beyond merely an observational phenomena. It's really become a religion, you know? And in, like in the 1980s, it became entirely subjective, right? Like when Whitley Stryber published Communion, um, it, you know, the abduction phenomena really started to take off. It, it, it completely left observational behind and it became kind of this intensely personal search for meaning and, and took on some religious overtones as well. And so the, the challenge becomes it's so wrapped up with culture and the imagination that it's difficult to look at that objectively. And that's what makes the Navy UAP sighting so interesting because they are documented more rigorously and there's just kind of a level of credibility that makes it impossible to ignore. Okay, Documented uh, pictures. We're about pictures two minutes through. out from the uh, break. But okay. uh, I have a whole bunch of questions I want to ask you when we come back from the break, if that's okay. Sure. Right. Okay. Can you break, let me just say who we are. <laughs> we are the other side of midnight and co-hosting is... Ron Gerbron and Keith Morgan has joined us, and our honored guest is Tim Ventura. The show is called Inside. <laughs> Don't worry, Tim. We're glad you're there. Fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcast heard in over 160 countries around the world. 
Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side at midnight.com. Tonight's show is called Inside, and our guest is Tim Ventura. Co-hosting are Ron Gerbron, Keith Morgan, and myself, Kintheo. We're standing in for Richard, who suddenly took ill. So as we went to break, we were just talking about the whole UFO phenomenon, and Tim was mentioning how it's become a religion, and I tend to agree with you on that. So take it away, guys. Hmm. Well, I don't know about people that worship flying saucers. How about you, Tim? <laughs> well, yeah, uh, you know, it, it really has. Uh, you know, I tend to call the stuff cultural mythology, right? And, uh, you know, it's uh, inside stories, you know, and anti-gravity has that as well. We were talking about one the other week. Uh, back in the 1980s, there was a 3M polyethylene plastic wrap plant. And they had a new machine that wasn't grounded properly, right? And so this this polyethylene, the again plastic wrap, comes off these giant rollers at high speed, and they they chop it up and bundle it for sale. Well, so apparently a static charge built up, and something no one can explain exactly what happened. And the story goes that there was a force field that was exerted, and even though the doors were open. No one could get into the room. They actually had to turn off the power mains and let whatever this charge was dissipate. Now, the, the problem is standard electrostatic charge won't do that. There's really no explanation for what happened. And yet this became, in fact, somebody had sent over uh, a description of it. It became a documented observable phenomena that nobody had any explanation for. You know? So, so it, what's interesting about this was this came up in an email list. I've heard two or three different people who don't really know each other well, and they've all told me this story over the last 20 years. So it's part of that cultural mythology, right? It's a story that nobody's really sure where it starts, but it kind of it's it's told and retold within a community, you know. And uh, you know, UFOs certainly have tons and tons of stories like that. But you're saying really, it's I, like cannot. You're saying that no. I want to. I want to. 
hold on. Let's stick with the Surat with the cling wrap for a second because there's something there. Uh, that's you're talking about telephone. You're you're equating uh, the fact that you got the story from a bunch of different places, and that's just it getting passed along and subtly ordered uh, altered along the way. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's the friend of a friend. I mean, well, what what really happened? Because I'm thinking of a paper I read just like three weeks ago uh, on quantum things, dealing with um, you know what graphene is. Yeah, uh, yeah. Two yeah, two dimensional, two dimensional carbon uh, expand. In other words, a single layer of molecules, and they discovered if you put one on top of another. You can play with effects for capacitance and resistance and so forth. But if you twist one a little bit, so they're a little bit out of kilter, you start getting these torsion field effects. And it's very much like electromagnetism, like two magnets repelling each other. And what you're talking about in that accident in that plant, the hypothetical or the, or the um, made-up one, sounds like a macro-scale example of that effect that has been manifesting in uh, the quantum realm. You know, it, it's it's entirely possible. Uh, as far as I know, it kind of falls into that bucket of unexplained. And I think that's part of the incentive that people have, you know? I mean, humans are natural storytellers, right? That's just part of, that's part of being human, and it goes back to the very beginning. And so when we come across things that pique our interest and, and, you know, inspire our curiosity, I think it also inspires that natural storytelling instinct. And so we end up with these in-culture references, right? And again, everybody has them, you know, even even video game cultures, you know, they'll, they'll talk, talk about the big boss at the end of a certain level or something like that. So it's it's not necessarily just UFOs or just anti-gravity. It's really every every culture has those they're they're hand-me-down stories you know and um and so i think in in the case of ufo culture it has many many of those and i think some of the difficulties uh differentiating between objective and subjective make it really hard to know what real is and i i know in my case that's what drove me away from ufos 10 years ago i just reached a point where i said i can't tell what's real and what's someone's imagination so what's the point? Because I'll never know what reality is, you know, Tim. Well, uh, because it, it might be dangerous to not know. You want to think about it anyway. Tim, uh, Keith Morgan again. Um, I'm the discoverer of the Morgan curve on Mars. It actually mathematically proves that that face and the other structures on Mars are real. And if you go to YouTube and you put the Morgan curve in quotes, you can look at the my videos where I demonstrate that these these objects are mathematically exponentially spaced and how they're connected to the big structure that they start out from around how Earl Torn discovered the X and Y axis. Math doesn't lie. Okay. And you know that because math is a derivative of the real universal language, which is quantity because there's a quantity of everything. And I go to any country and start holding up fingers and they'll know I'm counting up and I can take them down and they know I'm counting down and I don't have Actually, to speak the language. Wait, wait. Keith, wait. Actually, in some cultures, they count from a fist and extend the fingers one at a time. In other cultures, they start with an open hand and drop the fingers. But it's still, it's still, it's still quantity, and they recognize it. Okay. Right, but what does this have to do with UFOs? It has a, it has a lot to do with it because what's sitting on Mars 
is real. NASA manipulated my ABC camera crew away from Goddard in 1988, okay? I'm sitting out at Goddard listening to Richard Hoagland, Earl Torn, and Dr. Mark Carlotto talking about the face and the other structures. And Dr. Carlotto had done orthographically corrected correction on the raw data photo that NASA kept handing out with all the salt and pepper noise in it. And if he hadn't given me that picture and I put it in that copy machine and saw the mounds that were extending out from the brown, the big pyramid and found out, hey, these things are spaced exponentially. And, and then I did all this other little stuff and found there's too many coincidences mathematically that this is not a joke. Well, I'm not trying to attack you, friend. I no, just, no, 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 uh, no. I'm just we're saying trying to stay, we're trying to stay on a narrative here. I yeah, know we've got three, we're, three we're hours, a, but we're staying guys. on a narrative. But <laughs> okay, it, get to the... it all relates to the same thing. The technology okay. is there. It's always been there. I met a guy. He worked at Papoose Lake. All right. He worked with the SR-71. He did the fuel etc. He came over with the paperclip glass with Von Braun and all the rest of them. He worked with these guys. This guy's 80 years old and he's telling me his story on the plane about how he worked there and did he grew a ceramic lens. This is technology and stuff that we don't get privy to, okay? Because they classify it. Right. Now these guys have had anti-gravity for the longest time. They've just been manipulating the public to look in different directions so ah. they can pull off what they're doing in the background That's and because Tim, Tim? sorry yeah. Tim yeah, uh, yeah when uh when do you think anti-gravity was discovered any contrast here you know I, I I'm nobody's a bigger Mars person than me and Keith knows that I believe in what he's saying but we need some perspective here what time when did the somebody find out well, I think it's a, I think it's a continuing process of discovery. What I've seen are there are a lot of experiments that have been done that are showing some evidence, but they're difficult to recreate or they're difficult to understand. Right? Um, I mean, one of the best examples I think that's impossible to explain is the Hutchison effect. You know, and I'm sure you guys have seen videos of that. Where um, it, was, it was on my list. In fact, yeah, go, go I have links it. to it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and so, you know, John, actually, I've been up to his uh, his apartment in New Westminster up in BC. I've been up to his apartment four or five times, I think. Um, I have never seen the effect myself, but um, I give it credibility because, well, first of all, I, I have seen, handled, close-up photoed, and examined um, metallurgical analysis of all of the metal samples that he had. So the samples he has, and, and those I have gone through with a fine tooth comb. Um, and I, I can tell you, they look and, and act as if they were melted at room temperature. They were jellified, just like he says, you know. And when you handle them closely, you can tell the, the crystal domains are all messed up in the metals. Um, they look like they were turned into a putty. These aren't even things that happen when you melt a metal. Metals melt differently. They don't have any scorch marks. They don't have any, you know, machining marks. Nobody has cut them or manipulated them. They literally just turned into a jelly and melted at room temperature. And then at some later point when he turned off the machine, they solidified again. And um, there's no way to explain it, you know. But So when I, it comes I, to John Searle, are you familiar with him and his – SEG generator? Yeah. They did a yeah, whole now, conference now on Searle. a little Searle. different than Hutchison, right? Searle's a little different than Hutchison, but... Right. But his device is doing something that it shouldn't be doing. 
Yeah. How yeah. Do you, so well, how do you okay, get so, magnetic rollers to hold in place around copper rings and spin yeah. at the rate that they're doing without inertia pulling them away? Searle is a well, and Searle is an interesting one. So um, the the intriguing thing about Searle is everything about Searle should be a scam. And and what I mean by that is. Um, Searle basically came forward in the 1960s. That's when he started to kind of gain international notoriety. He started talking about building this device, a Searle effect generator, right? And he had a craft that he put it in called the IGV, the inverse gravity vehicle. And so it is, it's basically, if you think of like a roller bearing, it's kind of like a roller bearing inside of a roller bearing inside of a roller bearing. It's all made out of neodymium metal. And then he has laminates of different metals and plastics over them. So the, I, I guess, again, if you're looking at that bearing analogy, you could think of a bearing made of neodymium with different materials coating the rollers. You know, And so what he claimed was, he had a bunch of claims that went with it. One of them was, if you started this thing in motion, it would start to self-spin and it would speed up. And it would generate electrical energy that you could tap from it, right? And then he also claimed that it would run cold, which is interesting. That's in terms of anti-gravity mythology, that's something that you hear about a lot of the time. Uh, these various devices run cold. I believe that the Floyd Sweet VTA, the vacuum triode amplifier, was supposed to do that as well. And the the the, the explanation, as they say, is that it's absorbing energy from the environment, and that's why it runs cold. So again, Searle made all these claims about that. The other thing he said was um, if it spun fast enough, if it generated enough energy, it would actually generate an anti-gravity effect and shoot off through the table. You know, And this is a, he claimed this was a large effect, right? Like you chain it to the table and it takes the table with it. The other thing about the Searle effect generator was he said it was a, cylinder, it was a spherical field, which I always thought was interesting because if you were going to make a story up, you wouldn't necessarily make something like this up. He said that when it took off, it took what they called a ground plant with it. The field was spherical, so it would literally rip up some of the soil underneath it, right? Kind of like the kind of like the shell that the Terminator lands in the movies. You know, when the Terminator goes back in time, he always lands in that semi-spherical shell on the ground. Oh yeah. Well, Speaking of bubbles, yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It creates a bubble. Part of that bubble is under the ground. It rips up the ground with it unless you put it in this craft and get it above a certain level. So, you know, the, the story itself is it's a tall tale. It's a fish story. Right. And you say, OK, well, you know, prove it. Well, so one of the most notorious folks who went to prove this, Searle has a few photos, but they could have been faked. He has photos of his team constructing this thing. He has some photos of this thing in flight, which may or may not be real. You know, it's difficult to tell. And the guy's been around forever. And so who knows? Well, back in the 1990s, I believe, 80s or 90s, a Finnish student, right, young man from Finland, went to England and went to all the different towns and, and interviewed people. And he, 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 was, he was really excited by the Searle effect generator. He wanted to know the whole story. And he came away disappointed. He said that the, the truth, as he believed it, was that Searle basically built this device and took it to the county fair and used it as a way to raise money. But nobody ever saw it fly. Nobody ever saw it operate. 
he said, I believe that Searle's a con artist. Okay, so kind of based on this, you've got, again, you've got a tall tale that sounds kind of too good to be true. You don't have a lot of verifiable evidence. The photos could be faked. The whole thing kind of smells fishy, right? And and then there's this other aspect of supposedly built, Searle built, I don't know, five or ten of these things back in the 50s and 60s. And after he lost his final one, right, he went to jail and came back from, from jail. Supposedly after he came back from jail, he was unable to build one again for the next 50 years. So, you know, and it was always this issue of not enough money, not enough equipment. Uh, Tim, Tim, yeah. are, you aware that, are you aware that there was a predecessor to that, that the idea of a, uh, of a wheel, usually a big wheel, uh, that you could give it a spin and it would continue to spin and pick up speed and then you could start drawing power off of it was around in uh, Leonardo da Vinci's time. He didn't do it. It wasn't something in his, da Vinci's notebook, but I think he may have remarked on it. It was somebody else. But uh, as far back as that, they had those. And in most cases, the uh, of the, you know, some of the accounts are, you know, ephemeral and anecdotal little bits of things buried in something else but in the cases where it was looked at uh two or three times they ripped one apart and then it wouldn't work anymore or uh you know one was damaged and it just stopped and and it's like somebody was squel squelching these i think the basic principle because they knew about magnets uh is um you know intrinsic to those that's come along and he was just following in their footsteps as far as far as i can see i think it even showed up in the uh, 19th century in like carnival sideshow kind of things well you know it's entirely possible i, I believe the story he told was uh i think he literally said he fell off the back of an apple cart when he was a kid hit his head and this came to him and, and w which which sounds like a cover story for something. Maybe he saw something. Oh, it's those apples again. Boy, they damned well, Adam and you know, Eve, and they ruined uh, they ruined Newton's life. Boy, gotta watch those apples. Do you know What's, about uh, Troy what, Reed and Reed magnetic motor? Well, if if I could, it, let me let me go back to Searle for a second though, because it it, it it's an intriguing story, right? So I I've, I've set the stage yeah. so far. Basically, I've set the stage by saying there's every reason to believe this guy is a fraud, right? Every reason to believe that. So in the 1990s, uh, uh, late 90s, if I remember right, uh, a couple of Russian guys, Godin and Roshan built a recreation of the Searle effect generator based on his plans. And it wasn't perfect. They made a bunch of little changes to it because it's expensive and it's hard to build. Uh, they they had a, a benefactor who paid them, I, I think it was several hundred thousand dollars, right, that they spent to build this thing. And they tested it and they got some of these effects. Now, they, again, this is the 90s, they were in Russia, they didn't capture video. So once again, you've got this questionable stuff. So with Godin and Roshan, they're coming forward and saying, yeah, we saw some temperature changes and we saw this self-spin. And, you know, I, I don't, if I remember right, they didn't see gravity effects. So that's kind of interesting. So it's like, hmm, okay, well, maybe there is something to the Searle effect generator. Are they um, the ones that use the uh, carousel tops to hold the rollers in place? Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, that's that's them. So so they so there now there there was and there have been I believe a couple of other experiments on a smaller scale that saw some strange effects, 
And then the other one was John Brandenburg, right, who's talked about Mars extensively. He's done some physics on that. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he was the guy who found the isotopes. He's, he did the isotope calculations and believed there's nuclear war on Mars. Yeah, we're both members of the uh, Society for Planetary Study Research. Yeah, okay. I hope not. Well, so so Brandenburg worked with a fellow named Paul Murad, again, the, the former SAFE Section F committee chair, and they said, hey, we want to test this thing. They, they spent literally close to a million dollars recreating this. And when they tested theirs, lo and behold, they found some self-spin and they found some weight loss. And again, they, they didn't build it exactly the way Searle did, so... Maybe they screwed something up, otherwise it would have taken off. But the fact that they saw these effects was very, very interesting. So to me, it, it just kind of goes to show that, um, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, but you can't always be sure exactly where or what. You know what I mean? It, are, but, you but familiar, it, are you familiar with Bruce De Palma? Because he was working with the magnets and he was – recreating the effect that uh, Michael Faraday discovered, which he called the homopolar generator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the De Palma homopolar generator. Yeah. Did you know that De Palma had worked with these um, heavy these heavy metal plates that he had on these poles on this like slat, uh, metal slab, and he would spin them in opposite directions, and he said that thing weighed about 600 pounds, but it would lose six pounds just by spinning these um, – I guess they they weren't really flywheels. They were more like plates that were weighed a ton or whatever. Well, they, they were heavy. Yeah, and, and you know what, what's what's interesting too. And again, this I, I'm again I'm talking about kind of the cultural mythology here. When you look at Searle, you talk about De Palma. Um, a lot of these ideas involve rotating magnetic fields. And even in stuff like you have Eugene Pogdanov, he had a rotating superconductor that supposedly lost some weight. Um, in that case, the superconductor generates a very large field and you're mechanically rotating it. He did an experiment later with an impulse generator where it was a stationary superconductor, but the field rotated and it was a very high impulse. So it is interesting, isn't it? Because you see from, from you know, over, over a period of, I don't know, 80, 90 years, you know, you see these stories that appear from different people who don't necessarily know about each other, may not agree with each other's ideas, and yet they all kind of come back to this idea of rotating magnetic fields. That sounds like evidence to me. I don't know why you keep saying it's cultural mythology. Cultural mythology is like uh, cargo cults. and that, That's not what this is. This is people recognizing that there's – or intuiting or deciding that there's something – going on and trying to replicate it or come up with a way to do it easier. Well, Dr. these are these are hand-me-down stories that people tell each other, right? And and so so then it becomes this issue of is there is there truth in these? And if there is, what is it pointing us towards? A Dr. Bruce De Palma, um, when he built his end machine, uh, I got to talk to him. All right. And Richard Hoagland and I Yeah, were, don't leave Richard out of this. Yeah, we were working yeah. we we were actually communicating with Dr. Bruce De Palma. And I asked him, did you ever think of offsetting the motor and spinning this at a higher RPM? And he said, no, he didn't. And when he went to New Zealand, he took a beryllium rod, uh, as my probably about four inches in diameter. He put these disc magnets on each end of it, offset the motor, spun this thing up to like 70,000 RPM. 
And he said he had tremendous current coming out of this thing. Where's the current coming from? Because his end machine was putting out five times more than what was going into it. And he's not the only one because uh, Dr. Terari in India, he created an end machine based on De Palma's uh, work. But his was using electromagnets instead of permanent magnets. And he was getting six times more energy out. And he actually won a $10,000 uh, prize at a German energy conservation uh, conference because his machine was the most energy efficient. So this stuff works. Okay. I used to sit in ABC and watch spots come through. I watched um, Stan Myers come through with his device that used high voltage and resonant frequency to tear hydrogen and oxygen apart in water, electrolysis, using a half amp of current. And he's driving around in a dune buggy with a tank full of water, calculated he could drive from LA to New York on 22 gallons of water. All right. Pentagon came to him, said, can you build a tank that will run on gas or water? He set up a $70 million contract to do that with them. Then he wanted the water to come right up to the cylinder before getting converted. He did it. The device replaced your spark plug, and he said it would cost $1,500 to retrofit your car to run on water. That's when OPEC came to him, offered him a billion dollars to shelf device, and he refused because he's doing this for all mankind. The next thing he I know, he was in a restaurant eating, was poisoned, jumped up, grabbed his throat, said, you know, they poisoned me, ran out of the restaurant, got halfway down the street and dropped dead. But he wasn't the only one. Troy Reed and the Reed Magnetic Motor. Richard and I went out to Oklahoma to visit Troy personally. And we get picked up in a limo. And then we find out that Troy is the cousin of Dennis Weaver. And, and for those who don't know who Dennis Weaver is, he played uh, Chester on Gunsmoke. He also did McLeod. He was the, the actor. And he was funding uh, Troy. And Troy was doing things that weren't supposed to do what they were supposed to do. And when I saw him come through the spot at ABC, he had created the Reed Magnetic Motor, 10-foot-tall wooden thing that looked like it was out of the 1880s. And, but yet, he cranked this thing up. It would pick up speed, get to a speed that it would want to run at and just keep running. And it's working off of mainly magnetic repulsion with a feedback loop to help keep it going in a direction. Also, a crankshaft with rods going up, setting springs to set and release to shove the magnets past the first repulsion point as they approached each other. And then he refined that from this 10-foot tall device down to like a 10 or 18-inch diameter device that put out more energy than this 10-foot foot device. And this thing would just keep running. And he, this guy was an inventing fool, and nobody gave him any kind of credit. He, he created an electric car. He modified a, a starter generator for aircraft so they would put out not only high current and low voltage, he put out high current and high voltage, and they told him he couldn't do that. And he put it in the back of his car, towed this thing, and when he was at like 30 miles, 35 miles an hour, it generated enough electricity to charge the batteries and run the electric motors, and he never had to stop to charge this car. And I rode in the car. And I got pictures, all right? So this is no somebody's story, okay? So I know that it worked. And what happened to him, he had it backers, backers and then his uh, Filipino wife decides she's going to leave and take the money and disappeared. So I don't know where Troy is, but his technology was doing something that it wasn't supposed to do. 
where's this energy coming from? They're saying, oh, this is perpetual motion. No, you're using a small amount of energy to tap into a larger source. And they keep going, you can't do that unless it's nuclear. We don't live in a nuclear universe. We live in an electromagnetic universe. Oh, we're we're coming up on a break. Wait, 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 wait. I think I can tell you where the energy comes from. Well, we got uh, 30 seconds. I got to I can do it in 30 seconds. I can do it 30 seconds. I want to ha- hand it over to Tim, but the uh if you're out in a if you're outside with a tree with leaves and the rain has ended, when you see a la- a, dro- a dripping drop of rain hit a leaf and it pushes the re- leaf down and slides off and then the leaf pops back up, what you're doing is you're causing a smaller scale set of rotating fields to interact intermittently with the larger scale of rotating fields that comprise the outer universe. And every time it blips, just like that drop of water hitting the leaf, it gives it a little kick. And that's where the momentum comes from that keeps these things going. It's energy from outside of the system gained through resonance. Okay. You're listening to the other side of midnight. So uh, we'll be back. Thank you. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
Welcome back. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. Our dear Richard has taken suddenly ill, so we have standing in for him Ron Gerbron, Keith Morgan, and myself, Kinthea. Our guest tonight is Tim Ventura. And Tim, you sent us a whole list of talking points, which I found fascinating. But forgive me, I want to clarify something. Maybe you said it before, but what is a UAP? Oh, UAP is Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, which uh-huh. is, yes, that's a code word for UFO. Actually, um, I believe the British made it up. We had Nick Pope do a session at the conference. He'd said that they were using that word in the UK many years ago. And I think when they did the report, they picked that up intentionally because they uh-huh. wanted to distinguish it from... Uh, again, these cultural artifacts that you know we think of as UFOs, right? They wanted to get a, get rid of some of the baggage, I guess. I see that makes sense. So we've been having a pretty charged <laughs> discussion going on here, and I want to make sure that we cover the points you really wanted to bring to this uh, call. So, what would you like to pick up? What thread would you like to go with? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think that we've, again, you know, we, uh, we've we talked about the APEC conference, right? And I, I would like to invite everybody to visit AmericanAntiGravity.com. Uh, we have an events page. People can register for our mailing list there. Um, I, I would urge anyone who's interested in showing up for the conference to do that. It's a Zoom conference. It's free. It's open. You know, everyone is welcome. Uh, they're calling it the Woodstock of anti-gravity, and we're trying to kind of stay true to that spirit of, um, you know, everyone is welcome. We have two presenters, and then we have kind of an open lab discussion where people can talk. Uh, so I, w- I would urge them to do that. We've talked a little bit about UAPs, you know, and, and that's something I can talk a little bit more about as well. Um, one thing that I, I didn't mention yet is I did an interview with Frank Milburn, and he was the individual behind the Begin Sadat um, basically, it's an Israeli think tank, um, and he did a report on threat potential for UAPs, and that that was something that I thought was interesting, also. Um, and so that that might be worth exploring as well. But you know, let's do that. Uh, you know, th- there are a lot of assumptions that go into this, right? I, I mean, and and that's I think that's one of the challenges. But okay, if we're assuming ET is real and these UFOs are or UAPs are from ET, then there's the question of are they a threat, right? And that that's something that, um, you know, I I think that the Navy didn't really address that, but it's something that Frank dug into. He he worked a lot with Jack Sarfati. Uh, he did some research with Eric Davis' work. Um, he dug into a lot of reports, Elizondo's reports, and stuff like that. And he came out with some interesting reasons to suspect that there may be a threat there. I mean, one of them is intent plus capability equals threat potential. We don't know what the intent of of these UAPs is, but when you look at it, um, you know, when you, when you take a cold hard look, my impression has been that the majority of the behaviors that we've seen uh, are are neutral to malicious. Right on the on that end of the spectrum. Um, now, obviously, there are a lot of UFO advocates who would disagree with me, right, and say, "Okay, well, they've, you know, I, I've heard about people remote viewing ET and mm-hmm. saying that they're here in peace and love and all that." But um, Frank had talked about instances of nuclear weapons being disabled, uh, nuclear weapon launch sequences being started, 
spontaneously with UAPs over them. Uh, he'd also talked about just some of the, the dangers of having these things fly around military aircraft, right? It, you know, is it, it going to cause an accident? And so I'm, I'm, wait, I, I just want to jump in. In any of this equation, did Bob Dean's work come in? Are you familiar with Bob Dean? Mm, you know, it might have. I am not sure. Because he was, he was with the top secret service, and um, he had read this document that detailed that there had been this, apparently over Europe, these U UFOs or UAPs were flying over, and the Russians thought it was us, and we thought it was the Russians, so they launched this investigation, and they realized it wasn't either of us. It was something else. And um, so he was given this. Am I saying that right? Fighters, World War Two. Yeah. Yeah. So what about right? The so yeah, he was given this huge classified document to read only in the presence of. He couldn't take it from the room where it was, and it. They had done this investigation, and it spanned like over ten thousand years. They were looking back ten thousand years, and they had seen evidence of extraterrestrial. Uh, presence over 10,000 years. And he was, he was saying that, you know, if they were going to do something to us, they would have done it by now, you know, now maybe they are doing something to us and we don't know it. Who knows? You know, the, the other thing that's changing also, and this is something I've wondered about. Um, I, again, I, I, I'm just kind of spitballing here, right? I'm just kind of guessing, but um, you know, th there's this question of why are they here? I think that, Again, assuming ET is from another planet, they're probably doing some kind of a survey of our biosphere. Um, when you look at advances in things like nanotechnology and energy technologies and and things like that, <clears throat> there's there's really no material resource that that ET would need on Earth. The only thing that makes Earth unique is life. Life is what makes it unique. Well, specifically so, us, right? And, well, not and... not not just us, but but life. Right. You know, I mean, dolphins, whales, gazelles, zebras, you name it. It's, yeah. it's not. So so my, my thought would be um, maybe they are being more active because we are changing the biosphere. Right. There's been a lot of mass extinctions and stuff like this. Or maybe so, they're doing something else. Or, I mean, or maybe him. I mean, humanity took a real turn about 200,000 years ago. Maybe they are in a sense, parenting us, maybe genetically they've been working with us. I mean, could be, maybe, maybe we're not some other species. Maybe we are an extension of them on this planet and they're concerned what we're doing. They're we're their Chevrolets is what we are. Well, and so, so then, you know, so I guess if there is threat potential, maybe it would come in, in terms of, um, maybe they would look at mankind and say, hey, look, you guys are spreading out of control. You can't limit your population. You're trashing the environment. You know, I mean, if if a threat does arise, maybe that's where it would come from. They would say, look, you're driving all the other species extinct. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm just kind of again, I'm just it's something I've been thinking about lately. I'm, I'm trying to think. Well, about, what's okay, your well, current what's your current winning opinion? See, I'm well, trying. I'm, I'm trying to let you talk, but it's it's like the. Uh, uh, we don't. We have enough confusion in the world, and people with insight and uh, acumen like yourself are the ones we look to for clarity and sharpness. Uh, any kind of observation being done by extraterrestrials, hell, what can we do with what we have now? We can tell. We can tell each other 
what the surface temperature and the climate is like on a planet 150 light years away that we just discovered. Yeah. And so how come it has taken them 10,000 years to do a bio study to see if our climate's going to change in some way other than is part of the natural cycle anyway? I mean, we've changed so, this planet has changed so much without human help that at one point it was an ice ball. And it was only sheer cosmic luck that we got out of being an ice ball forever. Because once you turn the whole thing. Well, I, I, you know, I, again, yeah. I, I'm just guessing, but if I was going to, if I was, my, my line of thinking has been that they're probably studying, they're probably doing genetic samples. Maybe that's what cattle mutilation are, you know, um, you'd want to sample a large population. You want to sample as many species as possible. That would explain why UAPs are in the ocean. You know, there could be other explanations too. Um, if you were feeling really paranoid, you could say, well, they're in the ocean because we can't track them there, you know? So, uh, you know, uh, I mean, again, I'm just kind of making that part up as yeah. I go. But Yeah, well, it's, it's the it's job of the military to be uh, paranoid. That's what yeah. they're there for, yeah, you know? That's the, so yeah. so if you, you, always have to, you always have to add that in when you're looking at uh, any perspective from there. That is their job. It's, they'd be, they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't worry about everything that couldn't be 100% explained and integrated into the regular structure. But in this case, uh, is it a partnership? Is it uh, tourists? Are they, are, are they anthropologists? Uh, are they predators? Uh, you know, the, out of all of those, it seems like the last one is the most viable, despite what all the contactees say. Although I've never felt like they were threatening. They yeah, clearly. And, and, and you know, I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of stuff. I, one of the issues with UFOs is it's it's wrapped up with the Cold War, right? That's really when it kind of came into the public spotlight. And uh, space aliens were portrayed by Hollywood. They were representation of communists in the 1950s and 60s. The same thing as zombies, right? I, w right. Which is, uh, I'd read that online a while ago, that zombies weren't actually zombies. It was Hollywood's portrayal of communists, right? So, um, it, you know, so it, it's... I never it's, heard that. I'm going to use that. Okay, Tim yeah, Ventura I, says, that, says that communists are zombies. This is This is going to be good. This was yeah. well. Um, th this came out of if you remember. If you remember, this was in the McCarthy area, or the McCarthy era, right? They had all the right. Hollywood purges and stuff. And as as I understand things, things kind of swung the other way, and they were trying to make it uber patriotic during the Cold War, the early days of the Cold War. And so um, you had a lot of films come out that were basically representing the scourge or the threat of communism, but they didn't want to say it outright. And so this this article I'd read, the author, I, this was a while ago, but they, they made a pretty interesting case saying that zombies weren't actually zombies. They represented communists, you know, and and uh, then the person had touched on space aliens and said the same thing. You know, it's, um, you know. So that that was that was the idea, at least. So uh, it is interesting because when you get into stuff like UFOs, it's been around for so long that it has all of these influences, right? And and it goes through different phases as well. Like again, uh, Whitley Stryper with Communion really kind of changed the game, and I think that was what eighty six, eighty seven when Communion came out. Um, he really changed the game because all of a sudden people started to think about E.T. in a personal, highly subjective way, right? It became kind of a relationship with E.T. The abduction phenomena started to get more 
traction there. You know, I mean, Travis Walton started it, but it really kind of picked up traction when when Stryber published about it. So, you know, you have these different phases that go and they all kind of leave this, you know, cultural baggage on top of it. And and I think that's probably why the military chose to call it UAPs, because they're trying to kind of get away from some of that. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think yeah. of the uh, classified documents from the Black Vault that were released? You know, I read through a lot of those. Um, it's obvious that they were collecting reports. It, it's, uh, you know, and, and I've seen enough, cl- I've seen enough of the redacted classified projects, you know, over the years, right? The, the stuff that's been leaked were... It's it's obvious that the, the CIA, the intelligence services, have had an interest in this at least off and on for a very long time. Um, the part that's difficult to know is how focused it was. I guess um, if it was ongoing or if it stopped and started, there are a lot of unknowns there, you know. And I, I guess, like everyone, I would hope that finally they would kind of come clean. Um, uh-huh. So there's nothing in there about. Uh, reverse engineering? Oh, reverse engineering of alien craft? I don't think I saw anything about that. Most of what I saw when I was going through them was stuff like uh, a sighting was reported, a report was filed, it was given to this person, you know, passed through the chain of command kind of a thing. And and then that leads to the question of, okay, well, where does it end up? Does it end up in a, you know, like the the, the Indiana Jones warehouse at the end of the movie? (laughs) You know, that's the part that and I guess that's the big unknown. And one of the things that I've worried worried about is the military is big and complex enough, and you get into these compartmentalized access programs, they may not even know, you know? I, I mean, they genuinely may not know what they have. That's something that I've wondered about many, mm. many a time. Yeah, we find that with, hard uh, to believe that they don't know. I, well, I, I do think they're reverse engineering, but... We, we tend to... We we tend to think of the we tend to think of the government in monolithic terms, right? But the government and the military as well is a collection of agencies and organizations and departments, and they all have different directions. They all have different sorry directives, and then once you start to compartmentalize things, right? You get into special access programs and things like that. You you start to really weaken these links of communication between them. And, and so I don't know, it's difficult to know, you know, especially with, when you get into technology stuff, then you end up with a lot of pet projects as well. Mm -hmm. And someone retires out of the military, maybe they don't pass it on correctly to the person behind them. Who knows? Maybe it gets lost. I, I mean, what about the private sector, Tim? Well, and the private sector is interesting as well, right? Because a lot of people have said if these things are being reverse engineered, they would do it in the private sector to avoid oversight. So, Right. No FOIAs. Yeah. You'd so, have to prove that it was a government project first. <laughs> and nobody can do that if you don't know what it is. Tim, yeah. are, are you familiar with uh, Stephen Greer's coalition of people that want to blow the whistle on the government's uh, interaction with extraterrestrials? You know, I haven't stayed current with disclosure. You're talking about the disclosure project, right? And I haven't stayed current with that. I'm probably about 10 years out of date. Um, yeah, Ted Koppel gave me the opportunity to do two shows for Nightline. One was on uh, the Phoenix Lights, and the other one was on Project Disclosure. And the thing is, is that I talked to 
uh, John Callahan, who was uh, the third ranking guy in the FAA during the Reagan administration. And he's telling me about this Japan airline flying back over Alaska and they radio the tower that they're being shadowed by some craft. And he's flying a 747 and he said he was dwarfed by this thing. It was the size of two aircraft carriers in the sky. It was like looked like a walnut turned on its side with smaller craft coming and going from it. And he couldn't he couldn't make out what it was, but radar was picking it up. But he explained to me that the radar would look at something like that and try to make a profile out of it and say it could classify it as a 747, 707 or whatever. And after several minutes of drying this, it would take it off the radar and mark it as a weather anomaly. But every time it went behind the 747 and came back out, it would start classify, trying to classify it all over again. And this went on for 30 minutes. And mm. it, was a, it was a walnut shape? Like yeah, lumpy? No, take the wall, take a walnut, okay, and turn it so that the, the ring around the middle, the division, is horizontal, yes. okay? He, that's what he said it looked like. Now, yeah, well, Dick, you realize that fits the model that uh, Richard and I have been talking about of the um, ancient craft that are camouflaged by making them look like a big boulder or an asteroid. It's well, the same, that, that seems like the same thing. Well, whatever was going on, he said this went on for 30 minutes, when yeah. it was when it was done, he got the audio tapes from the Toronto tape conversation between the cockpit and the tower. He got the radar disc. He synchronized them, played them back, so that when you hear the pilot say, "It's now's above me, it's below me, it's to the left," you can see on radar is exactly where he's saying. He re he recorded all of this onto uh, videotape. He took it to the number one guy, Admiral Ingen. And he thought Admiral Ingram was going to look at it for just a few seconds and dismiss the whole thing. He told, he said Admiral Ingram told his sec secretary to hold all his calls. He watched the entire thing. He said a few days or maybe it was a week later, they had this huge meeting. Three guys from Reagan scientific staff, three guys from the FBI, three guys from the CIA. And he said a whole bunch of other people, he didn't know who they were, but they were scientists of some type. And they were all excited because they never had 30 minutes worth of UFO data on radar before. He said wow. they they had boxes, the printouts of the radar data. He said 30 minutes worth of radar data printout took up a whole wall and went to the ceiling. He had transcripts signed by the pilots, co-pilots, and tower people. He said that he had a copy of the video that he synchronized. They went over all this stuff, and at the end, one of the guys from the CIA stood up and said, this incident never happened, this meeting never took place, and we're confiscating all of this. And they took all the material from him. Oh my gosh! But when he there retired, any documentation of that? When he retired, he had a box of radar data on his desk. He had the original videotape. He had the original transcripts of the pilots and the and tower people communicating. And he took all that home. And that's why he's part of uh, Stephen Greer's coalition to blow the whistle on this. Okay. And yeah, cool. Yeah. And I would I, the. You know, it's it's the kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes because he told me another story about how we had this national radar system when we went to the new national radar system. I said, yeah, there was a controversy about that. And he said, yeah, it was so full of errors that he scared him. He didn't want to fly. But he came back on a flight one day and he's thinking this idea. Well, if we treat this like baseball stats, we could say, oh, the system was 95 uh, percent efficient today or the system was 90 percent efficient today. He said it got down into the 70s. It was so bad. 
But he said, you guys didn't catch on. And this is what we told you talking about the media. They gave him a $10,000 bonus for coming up with that. Right. And I said, most people aren't going to believe this kind of stuff. But this is the kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Yes, there were uh, UAPs or UFOs, whatever you want to call them, in the skies. And pilots have encountered them. And now the Nimitz is the, the Navy's going, oh, you're going to let our pilots now report this kind of stuff. Right? But it's been there the whole time. The Phoenix Lights, that huge craft flew over the top. And then Nightline was going to do the show. But then everybody jumped on this three month, three month old story like it had happened that day. And the executive producer said to me, well, we're not going to do it now. And I'm like, why? Oh, everybody else has done it. But you know well, what? The the Nash, Merlin National Guard came for it and said, oh, yeah, we were dropping flares as part of Operation Snowbird. And I dropped my jaw because I said, I can't believe they just told them the truth. But they said, oh, it's when we're moving planes between one Air Force base to the other. But I know Operation Snowbird a decade or more before that as part of an offshoot of Operation Red Light. And you don't know what Operation Red Light is, do you? No, no. Operation Red Light is the operation where we're flying extraterrestrial vehicles, either recovered in crashes or given to us by extraterrestrials. Operation Snowbird is the operation to cover up the fact that we are flying these craft. So at 8 o'clock, this huge craft flew over Phoenix. At 10 o'clock, the Merlin National Guard started dropping flares as part of Operation Snowbird. Keith, what's your source for Operation Red Light? I've heard of Snowbird. Yeah, that was... Uh, I came across that, gosh, decades ago. I don't even. Yeah, remember but was it was it from somewhere or was it like a YouTube video? No, YouTube didn't exist at the time that I heard this. All right, or whatever was equivalent at the time. Yeah, yeah. See, that's but that's part of the noise factor. You got to be careful about credentialing something by secondhand information. I think. The, the noise factor is difficult. It, it does. It troubles me. I think it probably troubles all of us. There, there are many times where I feel like our government is constitutionally incapable of telling the truth, right? Yeah, for sure. But Most governments are. Well, yeah, no, I, you know, and and, and uh, you know, it, it's. I don't think it's necessarily the people in it. I think a lot of it is the way it's structured. I think that people want to do the right thing. They just get trapped and they get stuck in rules and bureaucracy and stuff like that. Um, but, well, they develop reflexes. They develop they develop a, re, a reaction set that is based on fabrication. I met Carl Corso's son at an X conference, and this this young man was scared out of his wits because he said they were getting phone calls from organizations telling them don't print any more books, don't say anything else, and they were getting threatened. And he said he was he was just afraid just being there at the X conference because he was supposed to speak. You think that Colonel Corso was lying about what he was talking about? I don't think oh, so. Oh heavens! I didn't. I didn't say he. I didn't say Colonel Corso was. He's a. He's a primary no, no, I, source. I'm not no, saying I asked you. So what, one of the things that I've I've wondered about is, and and again, I, I it will be interesting if again if if the UAP thing does shed some light on this. I think we will have to take a serious look. Everything back to 1947, at least in, at least back to Kenneth Arnold, and maybe before that, we'll have to take a serious look at that and try and separate reality from storytelling, right? I mean, you know, and this this would go to the the Japan aircraft that you were talking about. This would go to some of the radar anomalies. What you know, what we'll have to find ways as a culture, we'll have to find ways to be able to look back at that and and say, okay, what 
what do we think is real and what can we learn from this? You know, and one of the things and that how I've would wondered, you do that? How would you do that? Well, I think it's going to be. How do you change the context? You've got to move the context into another arena. And then people say, oh, now I understand it. It's like teaching somebody a language. You know, one of the other things that I've wondered about is if there are ways to use modern technology, right, like data analysis. And so um, one of the things that I've noticed, you find this online, is if you go to the National UFO Reporting Center, right, um, yeah. Peter Davenport has been collecting these reports forever. I mean, going back to, what, the 70s or earlier. And his his system, his database is all public. Um you would you would have to kind of know what you're doing in terms of data analysis to go through it, right? But as long as he doesn't hire companies like Dominion to do the analysis. Well, I've wondered, you know, what if there's a way to cross correlate these reports and figure out, you know, UAP flight patterns, maybe learn more about what they're up to, you know, where maybe one person doesn't get the whole picture. But if you've got sightings from five or 10 people, then then, you know, maybe we'll learn something new. Yeah, you should be able to build a flight map from that. That's a good idea. Yeah. You know, because I mean, sometimes that stuff is readily available. You know, that stuff's published, the FAA law, flight logs and things, but some stuff isn't, you know, it's, it's not included in there. So in the case of these that they either don't see or can't explain, uh, yeah, you could use, you could use eyewitness reports. They count, especially if you can find somebody that's got some flight experience. Pilots are pretty good at estimating distance, angle, um, speed, things like that. And yeah. it's approximate, but you get enough together. You're right. You're right. That, that counteracts the noise. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the. I think that's the challenge, right? Is just getting above the noise, and there's so much noise, and there has been for so long. And that's that's. I mean, that's nobody's fault. It it goes back to if you if you take something that people are experiencing and you push it down, and you say this didn't happen, this isn't real. Well, they'll keep talking about it, but that, then hold the problem is. Hold it there, guys. Been, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour break. You're listening to the other side of midnight. The show tonight is called Inside. Our guest is Tim Ventura, and uh, we have been exploring the reality or non-reality of UA, no, P's, UAPs. <laughs> and um, I'm looking forward to continuing this discussion after the break. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. 
Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19 point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Standing in tonight for Richard Hoagland is Ron Gibran, Keith Morgan, and myself, Kinthea. Our guest is Tim Ventura, and the show is called Inside. And so, guys, we were talking, and Keith, you were mentioning how they had collected all this radar information on this UAP. And I'm thinking, well, that would fit in with what Tim is saying about... Uh, the departments be not being able to talk to each other because if these are ours from one of our departments, how come this other department doesn't know? Or are they really extraterrestrial? Who knows? So I'm going to hand the ball back to you all and <laughs> let's see who picks it up. I hope Tim, you uh, pick it up. You you run with the ball. Well, yeah, Tim, finish your thought. Oh. You know, actually, if I could jump in, you mentioned radar radar anomalies. Um, so Mark Sokol, who was the person who originally uh, approached me about doing this conference, one of his pet projects is called the Alzafon Flying Saucer. This goes back to Frederick Alzafon and his son David is continuing his legacy. It goes back to the 50s, I think. And it originally came out of what they're calling a flying saucer sighting, right? Supposedly an AWACS aircraft recorded frequencies from a flying saucer. And Frederick Alzafon got a hold of these and used them to reverse engineer what he believes is kind of a nuclear magnetic resonance system. And so the idea is, again, it's rotating magnetic fields and gyroscopic precession, but it's on an atomic scale. And so the idea is you're using resonance to actually line up the atoms in a craft. 
and then kind of kicked them all at once, created a propulsive effect. And Alzafon conducted experiments with this, I believe, in the 1980s. Uh, it could have been earlier as well. And indicated that he did have some weight loss, but, uh, but it, it was transient because they were having difficulties with their experiment with metals heating and stuff like that. So uh, this is one of the things that inspired Mark. This is kind of one of his favorite anti-gravity experiments, I guess. And it comes directly from what's believed to be a, you know, a UFO sighting incident. Um, so that's interesting. And we actually had David Alzafon on. He, he came on, did a session for the conference. Um, you know, again, this is this is something where um, our, our focus isn't necessarily on UFOs, UAPs, but we have a lot of folks who are interested in that. And so it seems to keep popping up again and again. Uh, Paul Murad also, even though, you know, being an aerospace engineer and being a, a very conventional physics person in many ways, that's been one of his pet projects. He has a scrapbook of UFO sighting and photos and stuff like that that dates back decades. And so he is going to be doing a session the next pro probably either February 20th or the beginning of March. And he is going to walk everybody through that and, and try and, you know, hash out how they might be doing propulsion in that way. Uh, Tim, can we talk about perseverance in the Mars 2020 mission a little more? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, UFOs. We can't. We can't solve that. I can't. Uh, I can't pin you down to get you to say that you do or don't believe in the um, uh, in a specific origin for them. So let's <laughs> let's let's go to Mars. Uh, hello. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm here. Sorry, I was just waiting for the <laughs> waiting for the question. Oh. That's all. Oh, you want you want a question about perseverance? Um, well, I, I mean, you started to talk about the helicopter, and then it just you know we got off into other directions. And as we, yeah, we I, mar go. I, I, as far as Mars perseverance goes, um, you know, I, I mean, I know for as, for as long as I've known him, right, going back to the mid seventies. I mean, you know, Richard really started his his career in alt science with Cydonia, you know? So, so the, the, the discussion of artifacts on the surface of Mars goes way, way, way back. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, it doesn't seem like NASA is ready to admit anything one way or another. Um, but it does seem like with Mars perseverance, they've created a situation where they can finally feel comfortable admitting something. And so, if they come forward and say life exists, what, what interests me is the paradigm shift that we're all going to have to go through, you know, because again, I, I think most people are kind of, they, they, it's suspension of disbelief, right? Like they, they view this stuff like a movie and they say, well, okay, well, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, maybe it's real, maybe it's not. And if it becomes real, then I think it requires change. You know, it's the same thing with UAPs. If UAPs are real, then all of a sudden the military has to have some kind of a policy, a public what policy. What do you mean real? What do you mean real? Well, real like part of our day-to-day -day reality, right? Like you you look up in the sky in the middle of the day and you're just like, okay, well, there very well might be something flying around up there, you know? Well, do you believe in, do you believe in back engineering or do you think it's just a uh, part of the cultural mythology, as you said? I, I really struggle with back engineering. I struggle with the idea of it. And, and again, the reason comes down to the infrastructure and the scientific expertise required to do it. I haven't seen any indication that anyone in the military industrial complex understands it well enough to do that. All right. Well, try it this way. 
uh, as I see it, you know, and from looking at UFO reports and so forth that go back literally a thousand years before it's, you know, lost in the noise of different languages and you don't know what they were necessarily referring to, uh, there's been very little change. There's been some, but there's been very, there's been relatively little uh, compared to the rate at which the industrial age took over Earth. Uh, there's been less change in those things. We can see the same kind of technology inferred, no matter how mythological you get, in um, ancient uh, ancient biblical events or in stuff from the 19th century or in stuff from World War II. It's just whether or not people paid attention to it. So uh, they've got – so if that's the extraterrestrials, then they've got something going on. They're doing their thing. But on our side of it uh, – how far back does it go? Well, it is interesting when you talk about change, right? And we have seen the big change was 1947 with Kenneth Arnold. I think that was the first public, the the first UFO sighting the public was made aware of probably, right? I think it was Kenneth Arnold and then Roswell kind of happened right around then. That was 47 also. I don't remember which yeah, one was Yeah, so first. did I. I happened, I happened right around Roswell as well. I always say they dropped me off on their way west. Yeah. Uh, but um, the no Kenneth Kenneth Arnold's the perfect example because for, apparently from later interviews and analysis he didn't call them what they came to be called it was some newspaper that came up with the idea with the name flying saucers he distinctly described them as kind of blunted darts which is much closer to those things in the UAP photos except bigger and um, so I wonder. And, and you know what, what's interesting is when you look at this modern. This is again, I'm I'm just guessing, but it starts about two years after we dropped the bomb, right? And if if you were an alien out there flying around, that's one of the things you would be looking for. You'd be looking for a big boom nuclear signature that's not on a star, right? Well, you'd, we're, you'd we're, notice it. Yeah, that's not something that would happen naturally. You could yeah. their instruments would register it, but then they'd have to get here. You know, they unless they were sitting here, which is quite possible in the well, I, yeah, and, and that's an area where I, I fully believe that's possible because physics, I think physics artificially limits itself, right? But when you look at stuff mm -hmm. like string theory and you look at the direction that physics is going, we're already seeing hints of that, right? You've got non locality in quantum mechanics. Um, you know, you're able to transmit a signal instantaneously between two entangled particles. Okay, well, how does that happen? Nobody's really sure how it happens. Well, maybe the entanglement is just some kind of a quantum wormhole. Okay, well, so, you know, we see hints that faster than light travel is possible, you know. Entanglement's it, uh, just a term. Yeah, it's it, just a, entanglement's just a, just jargon. Yeah. And so I, I, I think that a lot of these limitations that we've placed on ourselves and and other life around the universe, I, I think that we're artificially limiting that, you know. And again, that's this goes back to what the APEC conference is looking at is bingo. Um, yeah. You know, how can people who are thinking out of the box find ways around that, you know, and as you can tell from talking to me, I'm probably not that, not in that place anymore. You know, I, I mean, I've been hiding in corporate America for the last 10 years, you know, paying bills. But, um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy to do my part and try and help the folks that are doing it. Uh, well, does that mean you don't believe in it anymore? 
Well, it's not that I don't believe in it, but you know, I'm just incredibly rusty. I mean, you, you know, I, I haven't done the math, and over a decade, you know, you just you get okay, out. Okay, let of me it help. Lose touch with stuff. So yeah, let me let me help with that. Whenever I hear someone talking about their conversations with someone from the Pleiades, you know, uh, not to cast any shade on them, so I won't mention anybody. It doesn't matter who. Uh, the I say, yeah, and how do you know that? You know, that's like being able to ask whoever wrote down in the Bible or whatever apocrypha it's actually in the lists of all the names of the angels. You know, where would you get that? You wouldn't have that information. And if I was an alien and I was visiting your planet uh, and yet I was able to fit in, I wouldn't tell you anything that was the truth. Well, I think that's an excellent point. And, and, and again, this, this goes back to looking at the behavior, right? And trying to infer as much as we can from that, as opposed to contactee stories. And I think that contactee stories have, like you, you were talking about noise level. I think that they've yeah. added an incredible amount to the noise level because it's mixed the human imagination in with it, right? Like, you know, right. uh, I mean, someone has a dream. It's not an imagination. You just have to call them something. The point is those people are honest. Something really happened. It really affected them. It was true, but their memories have been messed with, and they have the bad. They have they have the wrong nomenclature. They don't know what yeah. to call it, and so somebody else says, "Oh, you got the words wrong. That sounds like gibberish. So you must be stupid and making the whole thing up." You know, that's part of the noise factor. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I would agree with that. I mean, it's it's difficult to tell, you know, and and so I. My hope is that, that this is the year where we start to see some change and we can actually start to, to try and figure out, you know, what have we been missing for all these years? Where do you think that change is going to come from? Well, I, I, you know, right now I'm, I'm counting on the Navy, <laughs> counting on the uh, UAPTF. Well, how far do you Brown. think they're willing to go? How far do you think they're willing to go? The, the impression that I've had so far is for, for whatever reason, they seem willing to talk about it. It seems like they're willing to kind of take a step forward. Um, and, and so I guess we'll just have to kind of see where things go from here. You know, I, I think as, as far as everything that, um, you know, Christopher Mellon and Elizondo have, have come forward and said, I think that the cat is out of the bag. You know, I, I think they've reached a point where it's really difficult to deny anything. So maybe this means that they finally come forward. That'll be really exciting. What do you think about the that statement from the uh, former head of Lockheed Skunk Works, that, that famous and very accurate quote uh, from him about, we've got the technology to take E.T. home right now, but they won't oh, let yeah. it out. The, the Ben Rich, yeah, the Ben Rich quote. Um, yeah. I, yeah, it's, I mean, it's so vague, right? And that's, that's the challenge with a lot of that stuff. Vague, vague, going to another star system in a, in a reasonable length of time, carrying a passenger. That doesn't sound vague to me. Well, but I mean, or, he's not saying, he's not saying how, right? I mean, he, you know, he's not, I mean, he's not saying, you know, we, we have a crowd. He's just, we have the technology. So d does that mean it's, maybe, does that mean it's like the pace patents or, or does that mean that it's something that's Maybe it's a Stargate. Hand? A TR-3B, that's yeah. what they have. He also yeah. said that if you've seen it on Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, and found it wasn't practical. We've got stuff that would make George Lucas drool. These are all comments coming from the head of Skunk Works. He was dropping hints about what they had. He said these things were locked up in black projects so tight that it would take an act of God to get them released. So right. we've had the technology. We've had all of this stuff. It's just that 
we, the public is, hasn't been privy to it. So T Townsend Brown, all right, you were talking about electrogravitic lifters. T Townsend Brown discovered that way back in the, in the fifties, and the MythBusters decided they were going to make an electrogravitic lifter. And then they said, oh, it's putting out a ion wind of about a mile an hour, and that's what's making it lift. And, and then they put it in a plexiglass clear vacuum chamber and said, oh, see, it doesn't work in a vacuum. And you can see the embers burning on the dowel rods because they got grease from their fingers on it, and, the, and it was shorting out the whole process, and it was burning the dowel rods. They didn't know what they were doing. Yes, yeah, no, and they yeah. started in there to disprove it so they couldn't have themselves look foolish on camera. Well, exactly. And, you know, that's I think that's one of the challenges with television, right? And you see the same thing with ghost hunters, you know, where they go into a building and they decide they're going to see a ghost. And all of a sudden, every every creek in the wood turns into a spirit that's ready to attack them. Right. And so so the oh, well, the I problem, believe in that. Well, I, I'm just saying that you go in with a preconceived notion <laughs> and you're pretty likely to find what you're looking for. That's yeah, I know. Yeah. By the way, yeah. I have not told any personal stories tonight that I can recall. Of course, my memory's not as good as it was. Uh, but T. Townsend Brown lived about four miles from where I'm sitting right now. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, when he was doing those the later phase of those experiments, that's where he that's where he ended up out here. Yeah. You know. So when it comes to lifters and Beefield Brown, and that's something I've personally built. Oh God, I I have no idea how many, but tons. Is probably. it Beefield? I always wondered how to pronounce it. Beefield. I, I, I always pronounce it Beefield Brown. Yeah. Um, effect. You got to put effect on there. Yeah. So so the the thing that um, the, the issue that I ran into was efficiency. Uh, I was never able to get the efficiency up. People are still experimenting with that. People still have lots of different ideas how to do it. Um, but I was never get, able to get the efficiency to the point where it would carry a substantial payload. And that's kind of where I gave up on it. I said, you know what, it, it's, you know, there there are other things to put energy into, I guess. I've taken this one as far as I can get it. And there are other people still working on variations of that. Hector Serrano with Gravitech, he's working on B-Field Brown Effect. Um, he's working on something called the gravity capacitor, which is kind of a parallel stacked plate. If if you can picture a, a capacitor that's basically shaped kind of like a cylinder, you know, or, or almost like kind of like a big battery, of course, just a bunch of plates and, and they're asymmetrically sized. Um, that's something that he has been working with steadily for several years, and he claims he's getting oh, a results. Flux capacitor. Uh, no, 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 gravity capacitor is different than flux capacitor, but. Oh, okay, but they're both cylinders. Yes, all right. Yeah, I was so, told by my electronics teacher that it would take plates the size of a football field to make a one farad capacitor, and that was in 1973. Now you have these tiny, small one farad capacitors, and you got 3,300 farad capacitors, and that was. <laughs> totally. and, and the technology is constantly changing. The one thing that you can count on that's an absolute in this world, a number one absolute, is change. Everything yeah. changes. And these guys just keep telling you these stories about, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. I, I asked him, how come we don't send the signal through the magnetic field of the power lines instead of around the, through the copper? Oh, that's impossible, can't be done. And then in 1996, William Luke Stewart created a company called Mutia Fusion, sending 2.5 gigabytes, not gigabits, but gigabytes a second through the magnetic field of the power lines. So now everybody is connected to power, has internet, TV phone, all of it coming over your power lines is digital data, 
at a high rate of speed, right? But that was my idea back in 1973. And then I found out he's using microwave lasers, masers, to inject the signal into the magnetic flux. That was in 1996 when he was talking about it, testified in front of Congress, started testing in Manassas, Virginia, and he got his technology going. But then in 2004, they took him to court claiming, oh, this is just science fiction. You're just trying to build the public. But then at the same time, the military came out with HARP, High Antenna Aurora Radio Project. And what are they doing? They've got an antenna farm in the northern hemisphere of the planet and one in the southern hemisphere and is shooting microwave lasers up into the ionosphere. And Don't people forget going, the Russians. They yep. have their own. Yeah. And, and they're trying to tell They're trying to say, oh, this is mind control. This is weather control. No, they told you what it was because they always tell you the truth because they know you're too stupid to know the truth. It was a communications experiment because what surrounds this planet? A magnetic field. And if you can inject a signal into that magnetic field and it travels to the other side of the planet, you take it out, you got your signal back. Once that signal's in that magnetic field, nothing can interfere with it. No lightning, static, no outside noises. So you don't have lost data packets and retransmission of data packets. So you've got a clean signal. So if your satellites get blown out of the sky, how do you communicate to the other side of the world? You send it through the magnetic field of the Earth. And now the more Chinese are, it can't be it can't more importantly it can't be compromised. Yeah, and the be, Chinese are talking tra- it can't be traced. The Chinese are talking about using the Earth's magnetic field as GPS instead of having satellites. Well, and and the, the other thing the Chinese just did was uh, they transmitted quantum with quantum encrypted, right? They did qubits right. from satellite to the ground station. And I believe that was I don't remember what the mileage was. I think it was several thousand miles, though, if I remember right. We're in a whole new technological revolution, and nobody knows it. You know, the, the, the bloom box, it's a fuel cell. The man had created a way to create oxygen on Mars for the manned mission to Mars. When NASA pulled the mission, he looked at his device a different way, and instead of air coming out, you put air and oxygen and, and any kind of gas in, and you get electricity out. And the first thing I see on the Internet, oh, the bloom box hoax, and blah, blah, and now we're a decade down the road from when they first brought this thing out. And everything he said it was supposed to do is doing it. And plus, they've doubled the efficiency on it. So a box that was the size of a mid-sized refrigerator that put out 100 kilowatts now puts out 200 kilowatts and is 65 percent more efficient on the energy use of the gas than the first box, which was already using 65 percent of the gas to, to generate that kind of electricity. So yeah. we get... I'm sorry. I'm on a soapbox, aren't I? Okay. Yeah, no, I, I know. Because yeah, uh, there's a thousand people out there that are uh, dedicated to proving things like that that don't have the background information yet because the mainstream won't accept them. So they can't get fit in. And they don't, they, they're doing something that they know how to make work, but they're not quite sure why it does it because nobody will help them. And we, uh, we've got a list here. But I wanted to go back to Mars for – Tim, because I, I had another question for him about perseverance. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, okay. Oh, good. You're still there. Sorry. Um, the uh, okay. The helicopter's fascinating, and I gather that you're not sure whether it'll fly or not. Oh, I, I imagine it probably will. I, I mean, it, it just. I guess the the question is, you know, so Mars does have a thin atmosphere, right? It's known. And so if you can get the power to weight ratio, you get the batteries to work right, propellers to work right, the whole nine yards, then you can get a little mini helicopter to fly. And and so 
it uh, is to me it seems like an interesting toy but uh, other than that what, what's what's the utility of it right i mean this is a tiny well, a helicopter that's the ultimate scout you need uh that's something that we always should have had is a way to um send a probe out ahead of something that has to lumber around on the surface i mean that's what that's what drones are for and the uh, in essence we need a rover with a drone if we don't do it the chinese will i think the solution with the counter rotating blades and every and the particular texture on the surface to mimic what's on a bee's wings uh is um fascinating myself and they're they've i've seen the the films as i'm sure you have of the thing fluttering around in in jpl's chamber but um the, I just wondered. Uh, I just wanted you to bet one way or the other: is it going to fly or not? But yes, I think it's a good idea to be able to see over the next hilltop. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it probably will. You know, I, I think the, the it's it's kind of a proof of concept, right? It's tiny, so I, I think that's part of it. Is um, it, it'll probably be a good proof of concept. It may let them see over the top of the next hill, but um, you know, I, I think that it will be. It, it's definitely a precursor to something that would probably be more useful the larger size, I guess. Yeah, we need the anti-gravity for that. We need a proper anti-gravity probe or drone. You know, yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, on Mars, uh, that or, or some kind of uh, dirigible, right? That that might be another way to go. Yeah, actually, this is supposedly works at least as well as a uh, dirigible. I mean, that was kind of what was in... Um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' mind, you know, they were trying to figure out what do we do with this. They somehow already knew that there probably wasn't enough air there but, or that it was thinner. But, um, you know, they had to invoke the ninth ray. And in our case, it's anti-gravity. Uh, do you uh, have you seen their plans for the sample return? No, no, I, I haven't. Actually, They went they went through several several iterations with it. And what they ended up with finally was a little master or a little cannon. It literally blasts it off and sh it shoots all the way back to Earth. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I take that back. It may there may be a there may be a uh, an orbiter involved in the transmission, but ultimately the thing will plunk da back down here. You know, without uh, a lot of. I think it's caught by a return probe. Or, I don't know. But anyway, they shoot it off in a little cannon from the surface. And I think, yeah. Wow, Mar that's Mar Mars. Mars is is really there's a lot going on there right now there's a lot going on you know and then nasa has a bunch of lunar stuff too and i i, mm -hmm. I don't know i i'm personally i'm more interested in the moon but i, I think part of that's because it's logistically it's it's easier to get there it's easier to get back you know you can you can build now the man brings up the moon okay what do you have where do you stand on lunar ruins well, well on top I'll of them, tell you, of course, but you know, no, I mean, you, you well, you mentioned UAPs, right? But, but, uh, yeah. you know, so an alternative to picking up a nuclear blast in the forties would be if you had a von Neumann probe on the moon, I, I think it would be really interesting. And I think it would be interesting mm -hmm. to look on top of the mountain peaks to see if there's some ancient probe there just staring at us waiting for life. Uh, that's all you'll go for. You won't go for ruins. Oh, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I mean, I, I've heard about it. I'm just not sure. I don't know. I'm not sure what to think. Oh, okay. Well, we'll send you some pictures. Unless so you're, unless you're committed to it. Go, Kenfia. Sorry. Break. 
folks, you've been listening to a lively discussion with Tim Ventura, Ron Gerbron, and Keith Morgan. You're on the other side of midnight, and we will return after the break. side of midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Our show tonight is called Inside, and our guest is Tim Ventura. Co-hosting are Ron Gerbron, Keith Morgan, and myself, Kinthea. So, guys, take it away. Okay, Tim, go. Oh, well, yeah, thank you for having me back. (laughs) (laughs) This is the last half hour, so, like, punch up anything that you really, really want to make sure that, that... got communicated 
Well, yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I think the big thing that I'm really excited to share about is the APEC conference. And, uh, you know, uh, again, for me, this is, uh, you know, it, it really is. It's like the Woodstock of anti-gravity. This is one of those chances to get kind of all of your heroes in one place, right, at least within this community, and get them talking, communicating with each other. So for listeners of the show, I would I would invite them to visit the site. You know, we've got over 40 hours of conference video up online, um, 12 to 14 presenters, I think, lots of lab experiments and all sorts of stuff like that. So, you know, that's, for me, that's the most exciting part is it's, um, it's real, it's raw, it's, it's people being genuine and trying to solve problems. Um, you know, and there is a lot of UFO UAP stuff that, that's mixed in with it, uh, that may turn some folks away and it may attract others, you know? So that happened on January 30th, right? Well, we so we've been again, it's kind of an ongoing conference and and part of that is cuz it's just too darn easy to do Zoom calls. So we did the first one back at the beginning of November and we said, "Hey, let's do another one." So we did another one the next week and you know, then a couple of weeks after that and next thing you know, we are uh, you know, here we are pushing February and we've got two more. So. Oh, well, that's great. And did I remember, do I remember correctly, you said it was free? I mean, like we could sign up and participate in this even? Yeah. And, and to be honest, you don't even have to sign up to watch the conference videos. We put them all up on YouTube. So, so you know, I mean, if, if someone is feeling especially paranoid, they don't have to sign up for the event to watch it. They can just go, just go to AmericanAntiGravity.com and we've got all six of the existing conference sessions up. Uh, it's it's all up on our YouTube channel. You don't have to register or sign in or anything like that. If you want to attend one of the live sessions, then yeah, join the mailing list. And we just, you know, we, we reach out a few days before. And then on the day of, we do basically two emails for each one. And we just say, look, here's who's speaking. Um, so next week, we have uh, Jean-Francois Genest, who was, I believe, a director at Airbus. And then we have Mike Gamble from Boeing or retired from Boeing. Uh, and they're both talking about different experiments. In Mike Gamble's case, he may be demonstrating an inertial propulsion device that, that uses gyroscopes to basically move itself along without any external. A Dean, a dean drive? Uh, kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of. It's a little bit different variation on it. Um, Cause you know, Dean, dean drive is also related to Thornson, related to, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you've got this, uh, I, I basically, I just call them kind of an inertial drive, but uh, in his case, it's got rotating gyroscopes and it's using precession, but, but it's very similar to the Dean drive. So three dimensional yeah. version because the, the Dean drive is very linear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you, you have to, and again, we have video up online if you, if you dig through it. Um, or if you look up Mike Gamble, he's also done a bunch of stuff with Tom Valone recently. Oh, I yeah, think he, Tom has been a guest yeah. on the show. Okay, yeah. And actually, Tom has said that he will be speaking for us on the 20th. Uh, and I think that's when Paul Murad is going to do his massive UFO expose also. So. And are you finding like people are tuning in from all around the world or is it mostly America? Um, no, we're picking up a pretty diverse audience, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and the, the goal really, I know it sounds odd, but 
Um, it's to put a resource out there to help people bootstrap their own innovation, right? That's that's, that's cool. the idea behind it. So if if they'd like to participate, we'd love to have them. But if not, if they just want to watch the videos and they're they're trying to build stuff, that's that's absolutely wonderful as well. You know, it's um yeah, we we don't really have any ulterior motives or anything like that. It's basically just trying to you know, I, I mean, I, the way I look at it is I wasn't when I was doing experiments, I wasn't able to make it all the way there, but maybe I can help somebody else make it. And if I can, then that makes it worth it. Great. Cool. Great. Uh, Are you Tim, finding, I'm the, curious about the age, sorry. the age of the people attending. Are you getting young people? Yeah, we 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 have an interesting mixture. Um, we have folks from. I mean, we have a couple of folks who are in their mid seventies, and then I think the youngest person we have is a young guy from East India who tunes in after his parents tell him to go to bed, um, <laughs> and I think he's twelve, twelve and a half. So wow! Do... And how did he find you? For goodness' sakes! I, you know, I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure. And he's he's the he's the sweetest young man, you know, and we're happy to have him online and he asks great questions. He's very polite and and I, I just pretend like I don't know that it's, you know, four in the morning his time. <laughs> Tim, could I assault you with one more question about the Space Force? You do have an entry here, the secret behind the Space Force. Oh and yeah. Well, so I, gets, I figured you're the person that I that knows more about it. I guess I got a question, I, but go ahead and say what you were about to say. Well, I, I like the joke that I was kidnapped by the Space Force this summer, um, and and part of that is because I have a, I have a bunch of Air Force contacts, and so I ended up doing. Uh, I I also write right in addition to doing uh -huh. the conference, and I started doing written interviews with influencers. Those are online at, at timventura.com slash interviews. And so I, I did a bunch of interviews with people who helped basically form the Space Force. And I got to learn kind of the story behind it. And Richard had wanted me to, he'd asked if I could talk about that. Um, yeah. So I, I think one of the things that most people aren't familiar, probably aren't aware of was uh, the Space Force almost started right before September 11th. Um, Basically, the, the Air Force, they, they had a schism, right, where, where Space Command said, look, we need more resources. And the way things are structured now, when the Air Force gets money, it goes to aircraft first and space is a distant second. And so they were ready to split off and form their own force. There were deep rumblings within the service about that before September 11th. And when that happened, it basically shook everything back. And they said, no, just stop. You're, you're the Air Force and that's it, right? So the same, some, many of the same people who were still in the service, um, you know, it, it, during the, right before the Trump administration, um, after we were wrapping up the war on terror and all that stuff, they started to push for that again. And that's kind of what led to the creation of the Space Force. So a, a large part of it was being able to get funding that wasn't tightly controlled and redirected towards Air Force assets, right? I mean, and, and that shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, basically, they wanted space to stand on its own two feet as a service, as opposed to, you know, being the, the stepchild of the Air Force. Uh, the, it was the time. Other, at the time, yeah. Now, the other part that's more interesting to this is – there's been a big geopolitical push, and, and the public isn't really aware of this. Um, 
it's what they call blue water versus brown water. And for me, I think that this, I, I think this says something really wonderful about um, the people in, the, in our military service, that they're this forward thinking. So the way that we have the Navy, we have a blue water Navy, brown water Navy, right? Brown water Navy traditionally is to support ground operations. So for instance, <clears throat> if you, if you were to have a battleship off the coast that was shelling a fort so that ground forces could invade, you know, that's, that's brown water, right? You're using it to support ground operations. And blue water is where your Navy is out on the open sea. They're protecting commerce. They're saving ships, you know, in storms, things like that. So our Navy is a blue water Navy. The U.S. Navy is a blue water Navy. You know, we, we do both, but. Well, it's kind of brown water is kind of a dismissive term in the Navy for the Coast Guard. Yeah, it's yeah. Almost, it's almost good natured, but I mean, it you know, it sounds a little nasty, and yeah, that's a, a, you know, it's just it's just military tough talk. But, exactly. Uh, yeah, those well, pesky lacustrians in their in their little patrol boats—they do an awful lot of work that they don't get credit for. But in terms of comparing that to the space force, it trivializes the idea of the space force. I mean, well, the the Air Force Navy thing's always been around that competition over control of the darker assets and. Uh, so, well, I, I'm sorry. I broke your I broke your train there. Go ahead and finish. I just wanted to ask you if you agreed oh, with no. uh, Shatner yes. about the about the nomenclature or not. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, the 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 rank thing actually came up after they'd formed it, right? And and everybody right. everybody I know who who was you know, and, and I'm connected to a bunch of military folks who were all of them wanted naval ranks because of Star Trek, right? So I think pretty much everybody was universally mm -hmm. pissed off that they didn't do that, but but they you know they didn't really get a choice, and they basically had to be happy with what they'd achieved. The the. Yeah. The same blue water versus brown water argument applies to the Space Force, though, where if it's a brown water role, basically all you're doing is supporting military operations on the ground, right? And so, sure, you've got lots of stuff in space. You've got satellites. You know, you've, you've got all sorts of space-based assets, but all you're using them for is to make the military more effective on the ground. Now, yes, that has value, but at the same time um, – the the folks who wanted to start the space force have been writing papers about this and if you look it up you'll see you'll see many of them online where they're differentiating and they're saying we need a blue water space force they say okay for uh, we want to be able to protect Elon Musk. If they run into trouble, we want to be able to try and rescue people. We need to be able to protect asteroid miners. You know, They said basically any place that U.S. commerce goes, the United States military should be there to protect and assist, which means we need a blue water role that's, that's not just supporting ground operations. And well, so, that's excellent. Yeah, you've, got the, I, the, the, you've got a Coast Guard-like. I like it because it's, it's not derogatory finally. Uh, you've got a role akin to the Coast Guard in the orbital uh, assets, and then you've got the off-planet assets, which you know equate to the Blue Water Navy. Probably could use some new terms, but that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so what what I started to learn about this when I was doing these this interview series, and again, that's up on my website, um, I was very impressed. I was like, you know what? These 
you know, rather than rather than thinking of these service people, I, I think we, we tend to think of them as being relatively short-sighted and very linear in how they approach goals. I was like, this is very forward-thinking, very progressive, and very open-minded, right? They they get it. They get where mankind needs to go, and that's we need to go into the stars. And they're looking at their part of it and saying, how can we foster and and protect this mission? So. For for me, I, I thought that was very exciting, and I think it's something that the majority of the public isn't aware of. You know, so the, I I would say my takeaway is there are good people making good decisions in the right places. Uh, that's good to know. Uh, one question about the space force because nobody will answer this. I just realized this the other day. I saw something about it, and what about the first guy? I distinctly remember. Trump appointed somebody as head of Space Force. I believe he was from the Air Force. And he ended up murdered, although the official report is possibly he slipped in the tub and cracked his head on the uh, – cracked his – you know, slipped on a bar of soap and cracked his head on the tub and died. But uh, the uh, they've never released – since that was a military investigation, they have yet to release cause of death or anything about it. And yet now I can't even find his name anywhere. You know, I, I yeah, I'm not familiar with that one at all. the 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 first one that I know of is uh, John W. Raymond, right, or J. Raymond. And well, and he's he's, been, uh, he's clearly still alive, and he has hair, or I mean, he, he has no hair. This guy had hair. He looked like the he looked like an action figure. I mean, boy, he had the, he had the look, and they had a posed photo of him helping some um, ground crew change a tire on a plane and everything else. And he's just gone. What happened? Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with him. I uh, what I do know, and I, I I'm not. I don't want to name any names, but but uh, one of the things that I learned, I guess, when I was again when I was working on this was, um, they there were there was a lot of pushback within the administration, not necessarily from Trump, but from from the DoD, um, and there were actually some careers that were ended, uh, unfortunately, just to make the space force happen. And that that was how strongly they believed in it, and and again the 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 idea was um, these people felt so strongly that space needed to be more than just supporting military operations on the ground that they were willing to sacrifice their careers for it. And I guess it did cost it cost three people that I know of careers, and uh, you know what I understand is several more ran into difficulties within within the military because of that. You know. Hmm. Oh yeah. Do you have a book? Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I don't. I don't have a book. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, AmericanAntiGravity.com. They can learn more about the conference there. If they want to read anything okay. that I've written, I write on Medium. I have a, a substantial audience there. Um, and the best place to go there is probably just TimVentura.com/slash/interviews. And what I've tried to do is just collect all of those interviews, and it's really the same thing. It's it's uh, I I run a, I meet various people with innovative ideas, right? And I try and capture that and put it out there, you know. So. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm, uh, okay. Did we miss anything? Um, no. I you know I think that was I think that was everything. You know, it, it was a pleasure being here, and I want to thank you all for having me on and bearing with me. It was a little. Uh, the, the warp drive question was – you kind of threw me for a loop because you jumped right into that and I was – That's exactly what it's for. Else. I don't want people to read speeches. 
you well, know, we still have you know, another 12 minutes, folks. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I was teasing him on that, Kinsey. I know there's a little time left, but I was just he's I knew he'd, I knew I knew the warp drive thing would uh, would um, do it. And yeah, well, was, the, 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 and we yeah, did the, eventually go through that entire list of those exotically named researchers struggling to prove something with the uh, without support. Well, what what I can tell you, I, so if I mean, and the issue, I guess the issue with warp drives is there's probably ten or fifteen different approaches to it, right? And so that's it, it's it's the issue is knowing which one. One of the most interesting ideas that I've run across, and I did a couple of stories on this, was. Um, I, I met a fellow named John Daring, who was uh, he, he had worked with James Coram and translated Coram translated Einstein's unified field theory from the original German. And this is the 1921 version. And he believed that Einstein had found a solution based on torsion for warp drives and gravity modification and all of that. And both of them were also actually Philadelphia experiment. Uh, fans. So they tried to apply it to that and felt they found an explanation. And they also felt that it might explain the Nazi bell as well. But the the, ah. the, the other part that's interesting about that was, um, so again, Einstein's unified field theory, he coupled gravity to the other forces using torsion, Einstein's metric torsion tensor. And mm -hmm. You know, again, that's spin. It's a spin coupling. So that might connect to rotating magnetic fields. And when I asked John, so one of the one of the obvious questions was, I said, okay, well, if it's rotating magnetic fields, I said, look, we have over a century of like magnetic motors and all sorts of stuff. How come never nobody ever noticed this? And he said, well, they did. He said there was a, there was an electrical engineer named Gabriel Crone. He was the father of modern distributed electrical electrical engineering, right? So if you have two power grids that need to transmit power back and forth with varying loads between cities, which happens all the time, he was the guy who came up with all of the science behind that. And he researched a lot of, I mean, obviously he did Maxwell's equations and all that, but he also dug into the physics behind it and researched Einstein's unified field theory. This is back in the, I believe in the 1930s, 20s, 30s. And one of the things he applied it to was they had issues with early electrical equipment where they had uh, a, a strange loss of energy, right? You would get stuff like phase creep and you would get field collisions and things like that. And so he used these things to optimize modern motors. So um, what the, the long story short of it is, is that what he was looking at is inefficiencies were actually probably these torsion effects. So if you say, what well, was how, his name? Uh, Gabriel Crone, G-A-B-R-E-L. And then I believe his last name was K-R-O-N. I'm going to put him on my genius list. Yeah. He was the one with the insight. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, well, it, it was, it was kind of an insight because he was looking at basically he was tasked with, okay, you have an electrical generator. How do you make it as efficient as possible? And he would say, well, these, you know, we have these field issues that are causing these unexplained losses of power. If you change the fields like X, Y, and Z, then it'll work. Well, what he didn't realize was the fields were losing power because they were spinning time space with them. So, so that, that for me, that's one of the most interesting ideas. And, and again, 
you know, I mean, when you get into stuff like warp drives, there are a bunch of different ways to envision it. And a lot of that depends on what model you're using. Um, like, for instance, there's there's one model called push gravity or Lassau, the Lesage model. And in that, basically, um, it's it, particles are pushed together by waves from outside. Right? Oh, Richard Feynman signed on to that. I think someone else came up with the original concept. But yeah, gravity uh, could be looked at mathematically equally well as a push rather than a pull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and yeah. that one dates back a long ways. And it's had there have been different versions of that. Um, and then you've got quantum gravity. Uh, and and I, if I remember right, a, a lot of the quantum gravity goes back to quantum foam, right? You have these virtual particles that are coming and going. And so what they're saying is inertia and gravity are related to electrical interactions. You know, it's just electrons and protons interacting briefly with these virtual particles. And the virtual particles are everywhere, right? And so, so if if that's the case, you would have a different way of modifying gravity than you would with push gravity. And then Einstein's model was talking about spin couplings. And in his, you know, you would use yet another different way. And so the, the challenge is you have lots and lots of different ways to explain the same thing. And nobody's sure which one is necessarily right, you know. And it's possible that many of them are right. You know, you can, you can express the same idea in different terms. So Don't you think it's possible that the reason that they can't sort it out is that they're being dissuaded? That people are being subtly pushed in the wrong direction on an individual level that are working on these things so that they don't quite get there? Well, I, I think, yeah, there's a lot of noise too, right? Just like UFOs, there's a lot of noise with gravity research. There's a lot of noise with breakthrough propulsion, um, you know, and, and so, you know, it's it's almost like you're walking through a dark room and maybe you have a flashlight, but there's a whole lot of dark outside of what, what little the beam shows you. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. um, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, I, I, and, well, yeah, yeah, don't, I, st I, don't I stop. Hope... I'm just grunting agreement. Yeah. This no, is, no maybe well, a... and I, I, yeah. I mean, I hope that's, I hope that's helpful. There's, there's a whole lot there. There's a whole lot there and it's all, you know, it's all interconnected. And, um, again, the, the exciting thing about the conferences, what I found is, when you have a lot of people, they invariably end up with everybody has a different little piece of a larger puzzle, right? And maybe some of those people have half of the pieces and, and other people only have one tiny little piece. But if you can get them all together in the same place where they're all kind of thinking in common, you can achieve things that no one can do by themselves. And and that's that's really our hope with this conference. And then by putting it up online – then the idea is, okay, well, maybe nobody figures it out. But if it's up there for posterity, then it won't be lost, you know? Yeah, never say never. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I hope that was helpful. Again, I appreciate being on the show. I appreciate you guys having me. I hope I was able to answer questions well and all that stuff. Well, I for one appreciate that you put up with it. Good for you. <laughs> Pleasure to hear from you. Great. Oh my goodness, what a ride. We're getting there. We're getting there. Okay, who's got any final words? I assume there's no angry phone calls or they're too angry to put on the air. Um, <laughs> uh, Kinthea? 
Well, I, I just want to thank Tim for opening this whole field up to the world at large. I love the idea of being able to pop in and look over the shoulder of these innovative creators of our future, because that is what it is. You know, this new propulsion system will totally change the world. And to make it available for everyone, I just think is brilliant idea. Brilliant. Well, thank and, you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I wish I could answer the, again, I'm very rusty at all of the technical stuff. Really, I'm, I'm just kind of working as a promoter and organizer at this point more than anything else. So. Yeah, but a good one. But but yeah, thank you again for having me on. It's it's been a pleasure, and it's great to see it's great to see Richard's show growing. It's great to see you guys carving out an audience, creating a niche, and yeah, you know, and keeping the dream alive. Thank you, thank you. You have been listening oh. to the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight has been Tim Ventura, uh, bringing space uh, innovation to the world at large. And uh, co-hosting has been Ron Gibran, our sound engineer, Keith Morgan, and myself, Kinthea. And we appreciate you all. May you have a good life. And music, please. Yeah, I hope you, I was saying to myself, God, I hope she timed that perfectly. Oh, Richard is so good at timing this. Oh, a one and the two, and I'll just, I'll just, we'll just call up All the right, spirit we of Lawrence really Welk and get into the audience. They're great. Thank you all. Night, all. <laughs>